Hello. In order to maximize your podcast experience, we are currently altering the neurological pattern of your brain. The sound waves you hear are expanding your current consciousness to new realms of perception. You may experience several unsettling sensations. This may include nosebleeds, day terrors, phantom odors, and premonitions of otherworldly doom. This is normal and should dissipate as your pineal gland adjusts your new life. Welcome to Binge Movies, Season 6. Episode 114. I'm Jason. This is a show that ranks, eliminates movies to determine which ones are worthy of preservation for all time, even beyond the end times. On this episode, we rank the AFI Top 5. and happy new year it's 2022 and it has been an incredible start to a new year i don't know if you've been paying attention but the pandemic is over yeah <laughs> global democracy's never been stronger the u.s economy is just it's just it's going bonkers everybody's got jobs out the wazoo we're all making enough money to live food deserts have dried up <laughs> Equality has been achieved. The, the the polar ice caps have refrozen. Australia's not on fire. Sea levels are decreasing. Comets are missing the earth. I don't know what happened. It feels like maybe I died and I went to heaven. But instead, I went to sleep and it was 2021. And I woke up and it was 2022. And everything was better. And the highlight of it all, the peak of it all, the thing that makes it better than anything else in the world. Climate change, climate can't change. The thing that makes it better than anything is we have the triumphant return of Megan Kearns Woo-hoo! from the Spoiler Peace Theater. <laughs> She's back. She's an actual film critic. We're going to talk about some old-timey fucking movies. And yeah. uh, we're, we're basing off of the 1998, the original AFI Top 5, which means we're covering Gone with the Wind, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, and The Godfather. Now, we've spent seven hours talking about Marvel movies in one episode. We're going to try to talk about all five of these classics in less than in two hours. <laughs> yeah, that's daunting. <laughs> that's the binge movies way, brothers and sisters, binge lords. Uh, Megan, how the hell are you? What have you been up to? And how has 2022 been treating you? <laughs> I'm great. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm super excited. Uh, I mean, <laughs> things are, I wish it was the utopia you described. <laughs> it, it is for me. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm i looking around. I'm reading my news and everything is golden, Megan. <laughs> it is never... Never been, been better. Better. 
You, you can't, I mean, you could throw a rock and you couldn't find a fascist if you wanted to. <laughs> it is amazing. This is, what a time to be alive. <laughs> Who would have thought the rapture would have made the world a better place? Who knew the rapture was going to take all of the fascists? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. All the anti-democratic, uh, anti-science, fascists, they're no longer here. They're gone. Yay! <laughs> I live near one of the largest sources of natural fresh water on Earth, okay? And for a long time, there were fears that as the West Coast ran out of water and all these sort of things, they'd have to start depleting the Great Lakes. Mm -hmm. It's been the opposite. Oh, we're now getting water from California because their water's so pure. And because of that, we now have dolphins in Lake Erie. It's amazing. If you want to swim with a dolphin, you don't got to go to SeaWorld, folks. You just got to come to Cleveland, Ohio, right there on the sunny tropical shores of Lake Erie. Dolphins are plentiful. Shamu is free. Yay. He is alive. Yay. He, he is in Lake Erie. Direct from SeaWorld of Ohio. Shamu presents SeaWorld News. In old news, or should I say prehistoric, they're back. That's right, dinosaurs and sea monsters, those massive creatures that once ruled the land and sea are now dominating SeaWorld of Ohio. Come see them now in the Monster Marsh, but don't wait, because once they're gone this time, they may never come back. This has been your SeaWorld News Update. SeaWorld, come make contact with another world. Yeah, don't go to SeaWorld. <laughs> <laughs> Go visit the dolphins in Lake Erie. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening to this, I know you're having just a hell of a good time anywhere you are in the world. Uh, it's We're all just, it's mass celebrations. It's great. Venereal disease, gone. <laughs> well, that was an unexpected benefit, so that's awesome. <laughs> it is. It really is. It turns out the new, all it took for there to be a new heavens and a new earth was for all of the Christians to disappear off the face of the earth. <laughs> all the fascists, the racists. <laughs> the bigots. The Christians. <laughs> the all the evangelicals are gone. <laughs> and it's just us uh, great people, and we're just having the time of our life. It's wonderful. Hey, Scotty. Jesus, man. You know the best part? What's the best part? I thought it was the venereal diseases and STIs going away. Well, that's the best part of today. I'm talking about the best part of the rapture. Oh, yes. The Do best tell. part of the rapture is when all of them, they left their clothes behind in neatly folded piles. <laughs> and they all were going up into the heavens. And it was almost as if Jesus himself dunked them like a basketball. And they went up into the sky <laughs> and straight into the fiery lake of fire in the pit of hell. <laughs> it was like, wow, what a swerve. All right, Jesus, you had me in the first part. <laughs> it was like, yeet, yeeted all of the, the white evangelicals straight into hell. The children you killed.
that coming. That was a twist. <laughs> that was the twist. It was a Jesus is a cosmic M Night Shyamalan. That's all I need. <laughs> Since we're living here in the future, we're living here in paradise. We're living here in 2022. What better thing for us to do than to go back to the past? Woohoo! And and to talk about some movies that most of the people who listen to this show probably don't care about. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm just guessing. I think there's probably a select few that do. Uh, but just judging by what episodes do the, the better numbers. <laughs> do the Marvel ones do the best? <laughs> Resident Evil. <gasps> all right. All right. I've done the re I did the entire Resident Evil franchise in a single episode. Nice. With, with my deceased co-host, Pat. And uh, RIP to him. And... Uh, that is like one of the all-time <laughs> like most downloaded episodes. And I was like, "What?" <laughs> so I'm just guessing, right? If the if that if it's a linear equation, <laughs> this will be the least listened to episode in the history of binge movies. If we're talking about if wow. Resident Evil <laughs> Extinction is way up there, Citizen Kane, Casablanca, The Godfather, got to be right in the toilet. Wow, you're zero really, listen. You're really zero selling me. Downloads. You're really selling me on being here. <laughs> you're like, this is gonna be the shittiest, least listened to. That's why I brought you in, man. Because uh, I'm hoping that people are like, well, Megan's back. I'll listen to it. Ah, you know? that's sweet. That would be nice. Uh, yeah, we had amazing feedback on the Scarlett Johansson episode we did. Oh, so, that uh, was. I mean, that was a blast. That was so much fun. Yeah, yeah. So good times. I had to have you back, and it's. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here kicking off a brand new year, especially now that it's Utopia, <laughs> brand especially. new season. Yeah. yeah, and you're the you're the highlight of it all. Oh. Just a, just you. slightly edging out Jesus, putting evangelicals <laughs> in the lake of fire, is Megan Kern from Spoiler Peace Theater being with us. I'm going to put that on my Twitter bio, that I've edged out <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it can't get any better than that. Let's, uh, I know, I'm looking at my watch, and I am I think it's about that time. It's 2022. Let's go back to 1939 with a movie that currently has a 90% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind has come home. The long-awaited video cassette release of the most popular film ever made. The original uncut version magnificently produced in glorious color and videophonic sound on Maxell tape. Gone with the wind. At last, see it. Hear it. Own it in this double cassette deluxe edition from MGM UA Home Video. Don't think about it tomorrow. Possess it today. Gone with the wind was directed by Victor Fleming. Uh, with a screenplay by Sidney Howard is based on Gone with the Wind, a novel by Margaret Mitchell. And you can, oh boy, white women. Hmm. Is Margaret Mitchell? <laughs> let me ask. Damn you, those was, white women. <laughs> was, Margaret, was Margaret Mitchell the original Karen? Oh my God, yes. <laughs> On a budget yes. of three point eight five million dollars, which you know you have to imagine it's uh, that's a lot of money in nineteen thirty nine. Yes. This thing is made over time over four hundred million dollars. But we don't really know how much it's made because it's just been <laughs> continuously re-released and all that sort of stuff. So some people estimate this is the highest grossing film of all time. Um, 
Yeah, so <sighs> I wrote a synopsis here and I thought it was almost too mean, but I will <laughs> <clears throat> I will read it, okay. Okay. Um Bad-tempered Southern aristocrats have a rough time losing their slaves and filthy, unjust wealth in a never-ending epic of white supremacist fantasy. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, so <laughs> this is probably going to surprise you, but this is, and we're going to get into it. But this is a <sighs> film I actually love, and oh no, I know, I know. <laughs> I know, but listen, it's a film I cannot defend, and so you're not wrong. Everything you're saying is correct. <laughs> Let's start with the good, okay? Yes. Do you have a, do you have a synopsis for me? No, I mean, I think that was a good one. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's start with the good, though. All right. Let's start with some positives, okay? At the 12th Academy Awards, it received 10 Academy Award nominations. Actually, 10 Academy Awards. I'm sorry. Eight competitive, two honorary for uh, from 13 total nominations, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actress for Hattie McDaniel mm -hmm. becoming the first African-American to win an Academy Award. It set records for the total number of wins and nominations at the time. And in 1998, when the AFI Top 5 was released, this came in at number four. Now, they've since updated it around 2017, 2018. We're not going to look at that when we're going back to the original AFI top five of the top 100. This came in at number four in the original AFI. So this is long regarded as one of the great films. And let me start with something positive for me, okay? Because I'm going to have a lot of things that are not positive <laughs> about this movie. <clears throat> the direction, the scope, the ambition of the movie, the on a pure movie-making level, technical level, this thing is an achievement that still, you know, relatively holds up today. And it is really, at certain times, something to really look at. Mm -hmm. um, I think, in particular, the chapel sequence, where they're using the chapel as a triage center mm -hmm. and the yep. light and shadow and, and contrast and darkness and just the scope of it all. The matte paintings here, I don't know if you've ever seen better matte paintings in your life. Um, it's a gorgeous kind of movie at times. What they're able to do with painting as mm -hmm. far as capturing like light and sun and sunset and dawn and the, the, the perspective they're able to add by putting things in the foreground and the background and in the mid part of the frame. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is truly, truly excellent filmmaking. Yes. Everything else about it is deplorable and insufferable. <laughs> this is what it is, is this is a soap opera before there was television. Yeah. Nothing this, wrong with this, that. <laughs> well, no, but this, this is, this is a melodrama about yes. these insufferable characters. And, and I'm fine with it. I'm fine. Not having likable characters. Okay. Except for the fact that I, I feel, and I could be wrong, but I feel like the movie isn't completely aware, or at least at some point, especially with Rhett Butler, they kind of want me to like the guy. It's what it feels like. <laughs> and he's a piece of shit. Yes. Now, yes. in comparison Agreed. to Sc Scarlet, I guess he's a better person. I guess. 
But I, I think I, I, I don't I think so. But yes, I think you're supposed to think that. Yes. And I was—I have a question for you. Yes. Since you love this movie, which is just staggering to me. Well, I mean, yes, I love it with a lot of caveats, like a lot. Okay. So, <laughs> is this movie positioning these people as fools, or is that just how I see them through my modern eyes? So I think it's a bit more. Unfortunately, this is not going to be a satisfactory answer, perhaps, because I think it's a bit more complicated than that. So, I mean. I have I read the book too, and the book is mm. awful. Um, <laughs> it is not good. Um, but I do love this film for many of the reasons you're saying. I mean, the cinematography is absolutely exquisite. Yeah. The Technicolor yep. is gorgeous. It's eye popping. <clears throat> it's it's stunning. Um, I love the acting. I think it's some of the best acting in in the Golden Age of Hollywood. Um, so there's a lot I love about it. I think the pacing is incredible. It does not for me. It doesn't feel like a four hour film. It moves at a pretty rapid pace for me. Um, but having said that, like I'm, a, there were, there were a lot of rewrites. They were writing the script while they were filming the film, which is not unheard of. A lot of films do that. Yeah. Um, yeah. and David Oselznik, who was the producer was really, who he really spearheaded this production. Um, and he, from what I have read about the behind the scenes, he really toned. And from having read the book, he really toned down a lot of the racism, which is kind of unbelievable when you think about it because this wow. is very racist and in a very awful way. Um, well, one example, right, is the the political group that they're a part, the men are a part of. Oh, it's I, the KKK. I, I in the book, it's the KKK. Correct. <laughs> but they don't say that in the movie. Yeah. yeah. That's one of the where's where they're like, eh, let's not make them complete. Right. right. <laughs> like, so there was a self-awareness sort of about yeah. that, about how awful in a way, they, at least yes. the KKK was, at least they knew that <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, so I don't think so in a way, I think it's like, oh, yeah, these are fools. But in a way, it's an incredibly romanticized version of yeah. the South and of slavery and of plantation life. So yeah. in a way, it's like, yeah, they're fools. But in another way, it's like, oh, look at this bygone era. Isn't it tragic and sad? So that's the weird. That's the yeah. weirdest part of the story. Yeah, is, it is. It's a, this is 100 percent. American mythicism of the South, right? These oh, are absolutely white supremacist point of views yes. where black slaves, African American slaves are just content and happy to serve the whims yep. of their selfish white Southern nobility masters. And they're loyal and to a fault. To a all was tranquil yep. in the South until the evil Yankees came and disturbed the traditional <laughs> family values. Those damn carpet baggers. <laughs> right, yeah, right. Yeah, it's but you know, and and, and this is a this is a uh, states' rights movie. This is yes. Well, yeah, they, you know, well they're trying to take our economy, and the black folks just love working on the mm -hmm. coming up to the big house, and every once in a while being able to you know say hello to us <laughs> without getting a beating. Yes, and that's like kind of the perspective, right? Is is uh, uh -huh. it's. And I, I oh which boy. It, but that perspective also, I mean, and this is not a documentary, even though documentaries are very biased as well. Yeah. But and this is not history, of course, but people treat it as such, sadly. But the other problem about that depiction too is it doesn't it, it doesn't implicate the North, which people don't want to yes. address this, but the North Correct. benefited from slavery as well Correct. in their economy. Correct. You know? Correct. So but yeah. So all around when it comes to the depiction of slavery. Yeah, this is an appalling film. And I'm by no what, means defending it on that level at all. What what they have Butterfly McQueen do oh, Jesus. as 
prissy. It's horrible. Is horrific to watch. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's so bad. Okay. You know, on the one hand, this is such a weird mixed bag of a movie, right? On the one hand, you go, well, Hattie McDaniels was the first African-American person, you know, years later, right? Mm -hmm. To to win an Academy Award, da 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 da. And but then you look at it and you go, okay, well, Butterfly McQueen wasn't even able to attend the movie's premiere because it it was a whites only premiere. Yeah, that's true. And you're just like, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Well, the other really interesting Ugh. thing about that, too, is Butterfly McQueen had a massive problem with that depiction and had a massive problem with the way black people were depicted in film. Mm. Whereas Hattie McDaniel, again, from what I've read, was more like, hey, I'm just trying to work here. I just need a I'm job. I'm just trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, yeah Which yeah. is understandable, but it's also, I'm sure, disappointing for many people. We, we got, this is an opportunity we have to take what we can get. Yes. And that was and be, her perspective. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I mean, she's amazing wow. in it. She gives an incredible performance, but in an incredibly problematic role that is perpetuating the mammy stereotype. And oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's rough. It's, it is rough. Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. We have something we here we call the beef scale. Oh, uh, have you ever heard of this? Do you know? Are you familiar with this? Tell me. Just refresh my memory. We 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 really like to objectify men on this <laughs> podcast. So we have. It starts off with junior beef. Beef is a description of their general uh, bodies, physicality, sexuality, attractiveness, <laughs> talent, all of it. Yep. Right. So we start with a junior beef, where it's like, yeah, they're all right, but they 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 can grow into their beefdom. Mm -hmm. Then we got beef boys. Now beef boys, <laughs> they're they're prepubescent beefs. They haven't yet gone full beef. Then, if they're a little bit aged, if they're that aged steak, that aged beef, they become beef daddies. <laughs> and if they're all time just pure sizzling <laughs> beefs, they become beef lords, beef gods. Okay, <laughs> so. Rep now here's this is kind of weird because these people are dead. So in this case, <laughs> they are dead. <laughs> it's not hot beef, it's dead beef. So as far as dead beef goes, where would you objectify Rhett Butler uh, in this film? Is he a junior beef, a beef boy, a full beef, or beef daddy? I realize he's he's old and he's really wanting to uh, have sex with a 17 year old Southern Belle. Yes, but. that is correct. He's like 35 <laughs> and she's 16 when they meet. Yes, it's gross. He's also a rapist. I just want to point yes, that out too, um, yes. which is horrifying. <laughs> which is completely played as charming, right? Which oh, like, completely. It's yeah. romantic. And oh, yeah. I'm going to swoon. Yeah, it's fucking horrible. Yep. It is she so horrible. She knew. She, he knew what she really wanted. He knew and he was going to show her and tell her. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean. Which, where do you put him? Is he, is he as a dead beef? See, junior beef, beef boy, full beef. Take it all into account. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> for me personally, I he's the lowest junior, I guess. He's a junior beef. Whatever. Yeah, the lowest. Yes. I do not now, find him is, appealing or attractive. So, Do you find that as Clark Gable in general is just like, eh, uh, it, but or is it specifically the Rhett Butler character? Um, I think it's also Clark Gable because I've seen him in other films and he's not wildly different. In <laughs> he's kind of this 
persona in the other films yes. I've seen him in. Yeah. So, yeah, for me, it's Rhett Butler. It's, it's more Clark Gable, but also, yeah, I mean, Rhett Butler's a little, like, you know, the cockiness is a little intriguing, I guess, but it's not really doing it for me. Yeah, ultimately what it comes down to is if you're going to put a man in a movie, if he's not attractive, why is he in it? <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think a lot of people thought he was attractive. He had a lot of charisma, so... And those I, people were those people were bigots, and they're all dead. So their opinions don't matter. I would agree, but I mean, <laughs> what's so interesting about that is is Red is not who Scarlet is attracted to or obsessed with. She's mm -mm. obsessed with Let with you know <laughs> with Leslie Howard's Ashley. Yeah, it's so strange. Yes. So tell me before I, I've run out of what I have to say because otherwise I think I'd just be really mean about this movie. Totally fair. Other than the filmmaking. What is it about this that works? Because I'll be honest with you. This story, I, I didn't, I, I found no engagement in it whatsoever. I, let, let's, let's, let's take the racism out of it, which basically leaves you with a third of a movie. Let's take, <laughs> the, let, let's take it all out. Let's take all the bad yes. stuff out, right? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it's kind of a weird love triangle. This little girl is very immature and entitled. And kind of awful to everybody around her. And her sister is just kind of a dope. It's very nice and sweet, but just kind of a dope, you know. And her sister's husband is loves the sister, but is really in love with Scarlett. And Scarlett's in love with him, but they can't be together because of arcane southern gentility. But then there's a very elderly, wealthy southern man who is kind of a devil may care bad boy who comes into town, even though he's 75 years old. I mean, he's, it's just so strange, you know? And then he just kind of rapes his way into a romance. I'm just like, yikes. Of all <laughs> the movies, wrong, that, of all the movies that Megan Kearns would like, yeah. you're shocking me, Megan. What, tell me what, what does this have? <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, I need a moment. Okay. So, again, I mean, I don't think you, for me anyway, I don't think you can divorce the filmmaking from the film. The filmmaking mm. is mm. class act. Like I said, the acting yeah. is incredible. The production design by Menzies is amazing. Cinematography is incredible. All of that is great. The epic scope, yeah. the feel, the score, all of it. As far as the narrative goes and the character development, though, I love Scarlett O'Hara. She's one of my favorite what? characters. I fucking love her. And I will go hard in the paint defending that. Because here's the thing. Here's the thing. We, as a I'm collective society, we love characters who are dastardly and villainous. We're going to talk about a film later. We're going to talk about The Godfather with all villains and how many people love that film and love those characters. Yeah. Women are not allowed, especially in 1939, we're not really allowed to be anti-heroines in the way that men were and are. Mm. And there are exceptions to this, like Betty Davis played a ton of anti-heroines. Oh, yeah. Amazing. <laughs> that's that's uh, where I was going to go. I was like, mm. yeah. Okay, but yeah. But yeah. <laughs> But that's I what hear I mean. you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, and that's what I mean. Like, you know, there are many exceptions to that, but they're kind of 
sprinkled in there, which is different than male characters who are allowed to be mm. complex, who are allowed to be unscrupulous, who are allowed to be villainous. And mm. that's why film noir is really interesting because the femme fatale is a really interesting role. Um, yeah. And sometimes it's just a trope, but sometimes it's more complex. But anyway, yeah. I love Scarlett O'Hara. Yeah, she's an asshole. She's a terrible person. But I love her sense of fierceness and independence and her her drive and her ability to be a survivor. And I find that to be the mm. most appealing that she's a survivor. Yeah. Is she a horrible person? Absolutely. But she's also not afraid to do really shitty things in order to help herself as well as other people that she cares about. And she kind of is like, no, I just got to do this. We just got to do it. Got to keep moving. I can't really think about it. And it's, I don't, I don't think she's a sympathetic character, but I find her a fascinating character nonetheless. And I could just watch her endlessly. I find, and Vivian Lee's portrait of her and depiction of her, I find so fascinating and, and just intriguing. You just described a character I wouldn't mind seeing on the screen. <laughs> my, I mean, this is just my experience. Of course, of, it. of course. My experience of it was different. Yes. Because I agree with everything you just said. I didn't see her as that. I saw her as the movie is presenting this to you, to this person to you, not as a necessarily like a, like a anti-hero or a flawed mm -hmm. protagonist or even a villainous sort of character. I was, I took it more as she's being presented to you as this hysterical, shrill woman trope. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I, I almost took it as the film was kind of in a weird way, like, She's not necessarily a survivor. She's sort of a greedy, hapless, uh, spoiled person who, for whatever reason, because she's a pretty woman mm -hmm. and she's so oh, helpless that we're <laughs> supposed to still feel sympathetic <laughs> towards her and we're supposed to, like, side with her, which is, which is, I could have read it, you know, entirely wrong. I might say my read is right. I'm just saying that that was how I was sensing the movie up until maybe towards the end of the film. Mm -hmm where I think she does become slightly more villainous, especially, I mean, the, you know, the famous end of this movie is Red, Red Butler basically like, you're a terrible person, and uh, now mm -hmm. that you finally come around to me, I don't really give a shit because you're awful. I don't want to be right. with you anymore. <laughs> right. He's terrible, and too, that, and he realizes yes. that. Like, I'm terrible, you're terrible, I don't want to yeah. be with you. When is Correct. he yeah. wanted to before, because he's like, oh, we're so similar. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 I don't think she's okay. helpless though. I mean, and, and I mean, this would be a longer conversation, but I think there are numerous examples of her using her cunning, her using her resourcefulness and yes, her ability to use people, which is despicable to mm -hmm. better herself and the situation. So, but I don't think she's helpless. Does she play that role? Does she use her sexuality to manipulate people, particularly men? A hundred percent. I guess that's my overall problem with this movie is I don't know what the movie is aware of or what it isn't. That's fair. That's so very I fair. don't know. Are you presenting like, like my question at the very beginning, are you presenting this aristocracy to me? This, this mm -hmm. like the Southern gentility, right? Are you presenting these people to me in a way that I'm supposed to look at them as all being like pretty shitty people? Mm hmm. Or, or am I supposed to be sympathetic or is it a combination thereof? Yeah. I'm not really sure. The same thing ha is with, you know, with Rhett Butler. Like, am I supposed to think he's cool or am I supposed <laughs> to think he's a monster? This, and and yeah. I don't mind ambiguity in my movies. Mm -hmm. I mean, we live in a postmodern world of ambiguity. The thing is, I don't know that this movie has a, for lack of a better term, sort of postmodern perspective. I don't know that it's deconstructing anything. 
I don't know that Scarlet. I don't know how. I don't know what they want me to think about Scarlet. <laughs> That's fair. So I'm not sure. Like I said, if I'm looking at it through the lens that you have, mm -hmm. this suddenly becomes a lot more interesting. <laughs> I mean, because it's yeah. whoa, wow, a movie in 1939 is kind of dealing with this stuff. Yep. And like, this is a very interesting sort of female character. Mm -hmm. I took it as being a very one-dimensional, kind of breathless, hysterical, uh, like uh, infantilized female from a very, like, this is an overused term, but like a very patriarchal perspective of like mm -hmm. the movie itself is like, you know, women left to their own, they have to be pretty evil. You know, like, <laughs> I just, I took it, I, did, I, I, I didn't take it as like, hey, we're, we're creating a complicated, more humane uh, a nuanced role for a female. Sure. I took it as a, uh, I want money and I'm going to have what I want to have. Oh, <laughs> like, you know, like that. I took it as that. Yeah. That was very taxing for me because sure. um, my sympathies lie elsewhere in the film. My sympathies sure. lie for the, the, <laughs> the, the voiceless people in this movie yeah. <laughs> who for some reason don't want to be emancipated, you know? And it's like, Oh my God. <laughs> and, I, I, and I know some, of, I, I, I granted some of that is a modern perspective. Some of that is a, you know, 21st century perspective. I, I, I get it. Right. I, I understand that I'm coming at it, you know, almost a hundred years later. Right. So I get it. I'm not saying that my perspective is, is, the be all end all on uh, uh, Gone with the Wind. I'm just saying that for me, of the five films we watched this week, this thing is definitively the worst of the week. <laughs> I mean, and it is a six out of 10. And all six of those points are a filmmaking. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think that's fair. And the thing of it is, too, is that I have seen this countless times, like countless. Mm. I have been watching this since I was a kid. I used to rewatch it a couple times a year. So I'm coming at it from a very different lens. I'm coming at it yeah. from a lens, obviously, of filmmaking, but also of nostalgia, of being so impressed mm. with this kind of filmmaking and seeing a really complicated female character. And the other thing yeah. I will say, too, is... I, I hear everything you're saying about her being kind of hysterical and coming through a patriarchal lens. I will say, though, I think what's really interesting, and again, you could do like a whole entire thesis on the depiction of femininity and white femininity and how destructive it is and racist and all of that, <laughs> because it yes. is. Um, yeah, right. But I think it, what's interesting is I think Melanie's character, played by the wonderful Olivia de Havilland, is a really yeah. interesting juxtaposition because she is seen as the pinnacle of nobility and honor and femininity. And mm. her best friend is Scarlett. And she chooses to have her be her best friend. She loves her dearly. I mean, and yes, they are sister-in-laws, but she adores her genuinely and has her back at all times and will defend her mm. and does through the film. And that's kind of lovely to see in a weird way, mm. in a weird, complicated film. The, yeah. the other thing I want to say is that, I mean, when this came on HBO Max, there were calls for it to be taken down. There have been many articles denouncing this film, saying that, you know, it should go the way of Confederate flags and statues. Lou yeah. Lemonick at the New York Post had a really fantastic article about that. Um, and Ayanna Dozier at Bitch Media had a great article looking at how Hollywood rewrites slavery. 
My favorite film critic, Angelica Jade Bastian, had an amazing article at Vulture talking about why we should not hide this film away and why we should keep watching this film because of its very insidious, seductive look at racism. Because mm. it's very easy to look, and she argues, it's very easy to look at like a film like 12 Years a Slave and be like, wow, that that's horrifying how slaves were treated. But then a lot of white people think like, oh, but I'm not that bad. Whereas Gone with the Wind shows people with a much more insidious racism, which is very relevant today. So I think that's a fascinating perspective. And I mean, I think all the perspectives are are valid, of course, and fascinating. And I'm a white person. So, you know, take what I'm saying with a grain of salt. But I do think that it is a very interesting film to look at and dissect for how we tell. And you you talked about this earlier about the myth making of, you know, the U S and what it means. And I think it's very interesting to look at it in that lens too, like where, where we are at historically, not necessarily historically from an accurate angle, but historically as like what we think about our past and our history. That's a very good point. I think that the only place where I was in utter agreement with the movie and the characters in the movie in particular, Rhett Butler is at one point, he's like essentially paraphrasing the only good person in this movie is the madam of the whorehouse. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, yes. that's actually yes. right. Belle she's, the only, <laughs> she's the only yes. actual decent yes. person. And that's again where this movie was so confusing to me because it was yes. like, but do you really know that? <laughs> right. Well, and I think that's. A, I know you're saying that. Right? But do, but you do you really that? know that? And I think that is a testament to the really messy production history this had i mean it Mm. had four different directors well technically Mm. three but one left and then came back later and it had you know like i said it was being written while it was filmed and sometimes that works and sometimes it can you know be like jarring and complicated and be Mm. like wait what are you saying this is very contradictory and i do think this and i i have read other critics who've talked about this being a contradictory film and i think it is absolutely contradictory you don't quite know what it's saying um yeah which and that doesn't again all for ambiguity that but in this but, film it doesn't <laughs> seem no right. but it doesn't seem intentional right it doesn't right. seem that the ambiguity is serving a larger purpose as a commentary on how Correct. life is ambiguous or these issues can be ambiguous or right like you were saying how you know uh, uh, uh covert racism you know obviously this is some overt stuff but yes. contextually yes. you would say this is covert because well they're not abusing the slaves and the slaves are almost like part of the family right. Right? The, the, the mammy trope and they yep. kind of they all love each other and they're kind of they like each other yep. and you know the slaves will will uh, will um even if they are emancipated or off off uh, doing their own thing they'll they'll stop their risk their life to save their masters and all this sort of stuff it doesn't seem like it's it's dealing with that that ambiguity or no, dealing with any no. of that or, or at all. It doesn't seem like it's self-interrogating at all. So no, not at all. Not at all. Since you love this movie, <laughs> where would you rank it and what's your score for it? I'm I, not saying you love the themes or the no, ideas. I love, I'm not saying Yeah, this. I love facets of it. And this is why I kind of, I'm so glad we had this conversation and I think it's an amazing one, but I have to be honest, I was kind of dreading this conversation for this film because I don't talk about loving it because I know, like I always have to give the caveat, like, no, it's a mess. Like, 
<laughs> yeah, no. You know, so yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing of it is, if I was giving it strictly on filmmaking, it would probably be like a 9.5. If I was giving it on social justice, it would be a zero. So that, that's, that's yeah. pretty much how my, I got yeah. to my score. So right? I would give it, I mean, I'm trying not to have nostalgia too much in here. I would give it a 7.9. I think that's I think that's fair, especially with the the you know you have a different lens through which you're seeing this movie. Yeah, and I'm not saying that lens is right, wrong, or indifferent. But I'm saying is the you movie call it that wrong. you. It's okay. <laughs> no, the movie you are describing yeah. to me is a much more uh, different experience than the movie I experienced. Yes. <laughs> But I'm not saying my experience was right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like I'm not I'm not trying to soft pedal it and be like, oh well. But it's it's. I don't think you have to defend your perspective. I think your perspective is spot on, actually. So I just think that we're each coming from it having different lenses, but yeah, and that's okay. I, I'm not trying to be a contrarian or just to be a contrarian, <laughs> but like this classic movie stinks. Like I don't, I don't really do that. I don't, because like you said, like from a filmmaking perspective, yeah, it's incredible. I think you summed it up perfectly. Yeah. It'd be like a, uh, I mean, 1939, my God. The, the 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 scope of this thing and the color and the just mm -hmm. just the, the on a technical level it's yep. flawless yep. really it's just everything else around <laughs> it is either really messy yeah. or pretty awful ir irredeemably <laughs> awful and you're just like oh man what a it's what a at the very least it's a very weird experience watching yes. this yeah I mean I can say as I've gotten older it's gotten to be a much more Strange experience watching rewatching this film. Yeah, it is. It, it is weird. strange. It is so weird. I agree. You give it like a seven point nine, right out of ten. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where does it rank for you? Where, where are you putting this among this pantheon? Mm, I'm gonna <laughs> give it a. I'm gonna rank it. Uh, I'm gonna rank it fourth. Oh wow! <laughs> I can't imagine. I, I have a guess of maybe what's. Coming in fifth, maybe. Maybe. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, let's move on to what some people call the greatest film ever made and what a lot of people who just started watching movies two months ago say is boring. We're talking about 1941's <laughs> Citizen Kane, which currently has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. Why is Citizen Kane considered to be one of the greatest movies of all time? I think there are a lot of reasons, and certainly the basic one is it's a very, very entertaining film. I never get tired of this movie. It's a delight not only to the eye with all of its compositions and its complex visual strategies to reveal this man's life, but also a delight to the ear because of its screenplay by Herman Mankiewicz and Orson Welles that has so many lines that have passed into the language. I didn't know we were speaking. Sure, we're speaking, Jedediah. You're fired. It's also a delight to the imagination because it invites us to go into the mystery of a man's life and by extension into the mystery of everyone's life, even into our own lives. What does it all mean? How do things in childhood still remain important to people 50 or 60 years later? These are basic questions. And Wells got it all together in this film. Citizen Kane was directed by Orson Welles with a screenplay by Mank and Orson Welles. <laughs> It was released September 5th, 1941 on a budget of $839,000 and some change. It made 1.6 million via re-releases, uh, but that's, it has to have accumulated more than that. 
1998, this was AFI number one and is current, uh, like very frequently number one or has been historically for 50 years on just about every list of the greatest films ever made. My synopsis is, the final words of a media mogul lead a reporter onto the tangled trail and tale of the world's most lonely man. All right, Megan, tell us why Citizen Kane stinks and it's boring. <laughs> I hate to disappoint you. I don't think it stinks or is boring. <laughs> no, not enough, not enough explosions, not enough action. No flying limbs off. <laughs> How does anybody hear him say his last words if nobody was in the room? Plot hole. That is my biggest problem. (laughs) Although, to be fair, he did go run around saying it a lot, apparently, before he died. But Correct. Yeah. But yes, I would like to know that, too. Why? How anyone knows that was his last words when no one was there. Um, Yeah, I don't. I have to say this is probably of all of the films. This is probably the one I enjoy the least. Um, hmm. just from a strictly narrative perspective, but from a, so is it because it's all about a rich white guy? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's why I love it though. Because yeah. I think it's interrogating. I, the whole movie is like, I agree. And here yes. is why Hearst is a terrible yes. fucking person well yeah and that's what that's what orson <laughs> wells thought too yep. apparently and yeah yep. no and i think i think greg tolan's cinematography is absolutely breathtaking Holy i moly, think the man. cinematography and the editing are why this film is remembered so well also the narrative structure is really interesting the constant flashbacks and flipping back and forth in time really interesting um and orson wells is great i think he's really great in this role um and i do agree with you i think it really is a deconstruction and an analysis of how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, you know, the whole time he's wanting to get back to his childhood and he could have done that, but he didn't. And, but he realizes it kind of too late. Like after all the women in his life are gone, after he's completely alone in Xanadu, his ridiculously absurd mansion, and he's got nothing to show for it except all this junk. And yep. it's really tragic. It's a tragic story. Um, Unopened junk. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's yep. like a museum warehouse. And like, yep. who's looking at it? Who's appreciating it? Nobody. And so much of his stuff is getting burned. And for what? What What was his life for? It, it all feels meaningless. And yeah, so it's, it's digging into these issues in, in an interesting way. I, 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 yeah, I think that this, I mean, obviously, okay, let's start at the top, but Orson Welles is doing this when he's in his 20s. Yes, 26. Right? Unbelievable. Mid 20s, straight out the gate. Whatever, whatever you want to say about the controversy of who wrote what, who wrote this, who wrote the, Orson Welles directed this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, like you said, the cinematography. This movie was not only revolutionized the way that movies were made. I mean, creating a closed set, for instance, like mm-hmm. putting like ceilings on sets, you know, um, taking movies beyond a, a, a times a very television kind of look to them, even pre-television. Um, uh, the, the scope of this thing, I mean, yep. the, the, the one-two punch of Gone with the Wind in 39 and Citizen Kane in 41, it just basically created the modern language of cinema, those two films. Absolutely. Absolutely. Period. 
And what they do with the camera, what they do, you don't think about Citizen Kane as a special effects film. Oh, but it but is. This, but this movie is yeah. almost all special effects yep. in the best way possible because it's all serving the narrative. It's all yes. it's all communicating theme and meaning and uh, emotion and where the characters are. I mean, just this isn't really a special effect, but just the the cu cutting back to the table. Oh. Getting longer and longer, I, and them getting older and older. That breakfast table scene is my favorite. It's so good. The editing it's like is incredible. Funny and sad, sad. and yes. and that, that's the one thing I don't think anybody talks about with Citizen Kane is how funny the movie is, <laughs> and just how and also it is how sense. fucking charismatic Orson Welles is young Kane. Very much, even so. though you know he's a kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> Even though, like, you know, underneath there, he's kind of a peacock, yeah. right? Like, yeah. and you, you, you just, like, you, like his best friend, I was always kind of looking side-eye at him of, like, he, he shows up to a rally to celebrate their success at the paper. And this is the thing that I, I always ask the question. It was just, like, they're supposedly singing a spontaneous song that they've written for this performance about how great Kane is. Yet he knows every word. <laughs> Great point. I don't, I, I don't think it's a plot hole. I think no. he wrote the goddamn song about himself. 100%. Yep. And it's, and it's like they never really address it, right? Mm -hmm. They never really. There's all these little, little things. We think of the big stuff with Citizen Kane. We think of its legacy and its mm -hmm. uh, almost outsized legacy at times. And I, I, I honestly think very few people have actually watched it, <laughs> that, <co> <laughs> that comment on it. Because I had the opportunity to see it in an old uh, theater palace, uh, one of the old palace theaters, just over the summer. Nice. With a big screen, mm -hmm. organ, the whole deal. And the movie is, is timeless on a giant screen. Mm -hmm. it, it, there's a sensibility to it that's very modern. There's a, like the storytelling, like you said, the way they chose to frame the story and the yeah. flashbacks and the, the it, it feels very, very modern. It feels very much like um, almost like a limited series at times. Mm -hmm. um, it feels like I said, there's humor to it. There's and, and from how he transforms to being a flawed, sympathetic, but very, very charming, likable like you understand the appeal of Kane. Like you like there's something about the guy that you're like, I want to be around this guy. <laughs> Even though you're kind of afraid of to the end, at the end where you're like, fuck this guy. This guy's a piece of shit. This guy is awful. Yeah. And then that slight bit of like, God damn, he's really is just like that little boy who yeah. was poor, who's basically sold and just never had a chance to be was never treated humanely and therefore he never learned how to be like a human person. It's just like, it's a, it's a weird. And, and this is where I feel like a lot of that ambiguity is on purpose. I think Mankiewicz knows what he's doing. I think Orson Welles, I think they're completely in control of this narrative and mm -hmm. this character and everything on the screen, even the subtle things are on purpose. Yes. And agreed. It, it, like for people like, ah, it's overrated. It's like, I don't, again, I don't know that you're actually watching it. I think you're <laughs> dealing with the legacy of it. Sure. You're not actually watching it as a film because I know I'm just sort of blabbering on, 
It's got dirt. The scope of this thing is insane. Yeah. It's the entire lifetime and the history of America, basically, right? Mm -hmm. At that time, modern history deconstructed through the life of a man who's basically a representation of a real guy who is the Bezos of his era, right? Yes. Yep. Who's controlling the world. It's yep. a complete takedown of that guy. Yes. Unapologetically. Um, to the point that it pretty much ruined the career of everybody who made this movie. Uh, yeah. Orson Welles was seen as a um, difficult director to work with just because of this, because uh, yep. Hearst, yeah, bribed the studio and was like, you need to destroy all the prints and we'll give you money. Yep. And they were like, to their credit, no. They were like, no, we're not doing that. So. Yeah. But the, I mean, they're, you know, the, the accusations that followed all of those oh, people yeah. basically yes. being communist yep. and anti-capitalist yep. and anti-American and all yep. this sort of stuff. And the thing is, the movie's right. Yeah. <laughs> the movie is right that this class of people who control all of the media and who control what you eat and like that, like that, that, that class of people that we still deal with, mm -hmm. they're not millionaires anymore. They're beyond billionaires at this point. They have destroyed the world. They have destroyed America. They have destroyed human dignity. They do run for public office. Yes. They are populist when they run. They do present themselves as, I'm just the ordinary man. I'm here <laughs> to fight for you. And they're 100% full of shit, just yes. like Kane was full of shit. Yes. And also, you know, historical significance, timelessness. Mm -hmm. The movie is right. The movie is 100% right in its perspective. Yes. The directorial genius. That this is a first-time <laughs> director. The scope of the film, mm -hmm. its impact on modern cinema, and beyond all of that, the cleverness of the dialogue. This is some of the best written dialogue of any movie ever, ever. And it's, it's the intricacy of the dialogue and the layers of the dialogue and, and coming out of Orson Welles' mouth and his delivery of it, it's like, Jesus Christ, these people are just on a different level. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> Girls, delightful in Cuba, stop. Could send you prose poems about scenery, but don't feel right spending your money. Stop. There is no war in Cuba. Signed, Wheeler. Any answer? Yes, dear Wheeler, you provide the prose poems. I'll provide the war. That's fine, Mr. King. Yes, I rather like myself. So, right away. I right came away. to see you yes, about this Mr. campaign Thatcher. of yours. Mm -hmm. This inquiry campaign against the public transit company. Mr. Thatcher, do you know anything we could use against them? Still the college boy, aren't you? Oh, no, Mr. Thatcher. I was expelled from college. A lot of colleges. You remember. I remember. Charles, I think I should remind you of a fact that you seem to have forgotten. Yes. That Mr. you are yourself one of the largest individual stockholders in the public transit company. The trouble is you don't realize you're talking to two people. As Charles Foster Kane, who owns 82,364 shares of public transit, preferred, you see, I do have a general idea of my holdings. I sympathize with you. Charles Foster Kane is a scoundrel. His paper should be run out of town. A committee should be formed to boycott him. You may, if you can form such a committee, put me down for a contribution of $1,000. My time's On the other hand, I am the publisher of the Inquirer. As such, it's my duty, and I'll let you in on a little secret. It's also my pleasure to see to it that decent, hard-working people in this community aren't robbed blind by a pack of money-mad pirates just because they haven't anybody to look after their interests. But I'm, I've not been a long-time Citizen Kane stan and defender. It's just upon every subsequent revisit, mm -hmm. it's like, holy shit, this, is, yeah. this may be the best movie ever made. <laughs> what do you think? So... From a technical stance, I think I agree with everything you're saying. I think it is absolutely well crafted. It's incredible. The its impact 
is phenomenal. It did. It absolutely changed cinema and how films are made and how they look. And it's incredible. Um, I want to talk for a moment about what you were saying about um, how people talk about this being overrated. And that's interesting because I have such an interesting, I'm like, I have an interesting perspective. I think... (laughs) myself on the back. I think I think when people talk about things being overrated, it that's interesting. That's what I should have said. And yeah. I think because things can be overrated, but that doesn't mean they're bad. And I think there's this association with oh, that's overrated. It didn't it didn't meet my expectations, so it's overrated. And it's like, no, it's like that's not quite it. Like I mean, if you want to talk about that it's you know, saturated, like it it, it dominates film discussions. Okay, sure. But there's a reason it does. This is such a technical marvel. And I, and that's the thing is that I think that when people and not film critics necessarily, not film historians, but I think when a lot of people watch this film, they're expecting some kind of more bang for their buck or some kind of more wow factor or something. But I don't think they're really realizing what is being done cinematographically what's being done with the editing what's being done with the production design what's being done with the lighting like kind of like everything that's happening and those you talked about the special effects and how it doesn't look like a special effects film and that's kind of its brilliance is that it absolutely i mean the constant deep focus shots are just breathtaking they're incredible So, yes, I agree with everything you're saying. I I think this is a really, really interesting look at the downfall of capitalism and greed. And that's exactly it is so fascinating. And especially when we look at all five films together, kind of like as a body. Yeah. This is probably the most arguably this is probably the most cynical and I find that really, really interesting Um, because yeah, because capitalism is horrible. I am no proponent of it. And I do really appreciate that bent in this film. Um, I think that it, the one, the thing that kind of loses me is I'm not as enamored with the dialogue. I think it's good, but it doesn't kind of, dazzle me in the same way and the other thing Mm. is too is that i think you are supposed to find kane really charismatic and sympathetic and he just devolves into this abusive asshole and i'm just like yeah i don't really feel sympathy for you like yes i can logically see this as a tragic situation that he dies alone but also i'm like but here you are abusing your wife here you are being a you know really controlling and really horrible um, and it's really so, in, but it is fascinating nonetheless to contrast that with when he's young, when he is really charismatic and really captivating and Orson Welles plays this so well. I also, sidebar, I think it's really compelling and intriguing to see how Orson Welles changes his body language and his tone of voice yeah. as he ages in the film. It's really incredible. The attention to detail is really spot on. and. Yep. One of my favorite scenes is when he's talking to Thatcher, his former guardian, and he's like, you know, I would have been a great man if I hadn't been born rich or born into wealth. And Thatcher's like, oh, well, what would you have done or what would you have done differently or what would you have liked to have done? And he's like, everything you hate. And that's such a fascinating line. And it's so interesting. And it's also so interesting thinking about 
do you ever really know a person? And like the whole thrust of this film is a reporter trying to find out what his dying words meant and that's going to unlock everything and that's going to tell you everything you need to know about him. And no one really knows because no one really knew him. They just knew facets of him or moments here and there. And that's, or what he presented yes, of himself. Yes, exactly. What yep. he wanted them to think. And yep. and because he says that too. Like, he's like, I tell them what to think, you know, with his exactly. newspaper. And that's also such, you know, a condemnation about media conglomerations. And it's just, yep. this film is just really fascinating to deconstruct. And I think that is a huge reason why it has such an enduring legacy too. Because it's working on so many levels. And that's the reason yep. I really enjoy this film. Because... I might not enjoy it narratively, but I enjoy it from a technical element and from a thematic analysis, deconstruction and commentary on society. It's just, it's fascinating. Well, it's a, it's its own story. It is a lack of a better term ripped from the 1941 headlines. (laughs) Yes. Basically attack on the Hearsts of the world and yellow journalism and all that sort of stuff. Yes. But it's also just basically a deconstruction of the American myth. Yes, 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 right? yes. On, on the American dream, on purpose, right? Because yes. he lives the American dream. He's a poor boy mm-hmm. who his family just happens into wealth. Yes. Or hap- happens into resources, but doesn't have the ability to maximize those resources. Mm-hmm. So a very wealthy person shows up and is like, Hey, you have <laughs> all of this these resources, but you can't do anything with them, so they serve you no purpose. Give me the give me your rights to your wealth, and uh, I'll make sure you're taken care of. And the mom's just like, oh, oh that's fine, but take care of the boy. Right. Like you got to give him, you know, his share, set him up for life. Yep. Whatever, whatever. And what's interesting is at no other point. Does his dude, his mother, I mean, you know, the father is a piece of shit, yes. but his mother never checks up on him. No, but does he check up on his mother? No. Exactly. That's just, which is fascinating. So fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's like, because that, there's that resentment there that he, yes. how the fuck could you give me up? Right. Right. And, like, and that's the weirdest part about the cane is like, he's enamored with what he has and he hates it yes he hates his wealth but he wants more of it yes and 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 at first he's like well i want more of it because i'm going to out wealth the wealthy and i'm going to expose them and i'm going to bring all these people down right like because mm-hmm. i'm not really one of them you know i'm i'm one of the i'm really one of the real people and i'm gonna i'm gonna accumulate all this power and wealth and i'm gonna i'm gonna use it for the little man right i'm right. gonna be the voice of the voiceless right and he writes the whole his whole creed, basically, his whole rule of life and everything. And it's immediate bullshit. <laughs> and that's the point, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the characters in this scene are like, man, if you have to write it down, you're never going to follow it. Nope. And, and it is a deeply cynical movie. <laughs> it really, really is. Because you see Kane bullshitting himself. Yes. And, and then you see him stop bullshitting himself and just embracing having opportunities throughout the way with people who really do care about him and really do love him and just pissing it away because he just so hates himself 
and he hates everything that he is, and he, and he just can't stop becoming more of that. Right. And if that is not like the definition <laughs> of capitalism, I don't know what is, right? It's like we know that what we're doing is wrong, right? We, we know that we're affecting the planet. We know that we're, people are being hurt by this, but we just have to have more. Yep. And at some point when we have enough, then we'll turn around then we'll and stop. We'll, <laughs> then we'll stop and we'll make everything right. Right. Like we'll we'll use this wealth and we'll we'll we'll, we'll be philanthropic with it. And then but it's like yeah, how many bodies are strewn along the way? And it's right. never enough. You never stop. But even your philanthropy is is bullshit. It's just a, a tax write off. And exactly. is a, you know, and, and this yep. movie is like way out of the curve. And it's just mm -hmm. like. Yeah, all these people are bullshit. <laughs> this whole system's bullshit. These people are bullshit. Mm -hmm. Even if their story is sad, it doesn't excuse what they do. And I and I think it does end on kind of a sad note. And you yeah, do, it does. I, at least to me, I walk away feeling like, God damn, man, like the last thing this guy thinks about, the only happy moment in his life is being by himself with a sled and not having a care in the world. Right. Right. And just in the middle of nowhere. And um, that's that in of itself is sad. Oh, it, his, completely. It's tragic. His memory is not of, oh, my loving father, because his father doesn't love him, or, oh, my no. loving mother, because we're not really sure what that's uh, going on with his mom. Yeah, the only clue to that is when she says to the father, when he says he needs a good thrashing, and she's like, well, that's why he's going to get far away from you, and you won't be able yeah. to touch him. And that's like the only, and I'm like, oh, okay, she's clearly sacrificing herself and her yeah. son for, so he won't be abused. Yeah, she's going to, she's probably going to continue taking those beatings. Yes. But she's going to make sure he gets far yes, away. Yes, exactly, exactly. But then they never have any contact with each other no, again. No, no. it's just and that's what's just, so sad because yeah. when you have that kind of wealth, I mean, wealth provides you access. He could have, he could have gotten her. He could have built a house for her. her. Right. Any yeah. number of things. Nope. He could have given it all up and gone and lived in the woods by himself and lived a simple life. But he couldn't. no, he couldn't because of his ego and his greed and yep. his lust for power. He just couldn't let go, even though he knew how shitty and terrible it was. Which and is just really fact, sad. <laughs> and his fucked up relationship with his mom mm -hmm. and his resentment towards his mom and yep. how he treats every other woman in his life. Oh, God, it's awful. It's all the same. You know, it's all the same, yes. right? It's all. Yes. And that's the thing is this guy just keeps repeating the same beats in his life. And yep. every time he's degraded a little bit more, right? Yes. Every time the good cane whether it be a veneer or him really trying to be a good, whatever it is, that part of him dies a little bit more. And the thing that he hates, you know, it's, it's, it's a cliche, but he really does kind of become the thing that he hates. Oh yes, absolutely. And, and in, in some cases worse. Yes. You know, you could argue he becomes worse. So now this was a real struggle for me because <laughs> this is a real struggle. Okay. This, this is score wise. I'm going to give it a 9.5 out of 10. Wow. But it's only my number two for the week. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and it was, at first, I had it at number one position. I was like, I was pretty deadlocked. I was like, okay, I think it's going to be number one. And then I, I, I just really thought about it. I was like, I got to shift. It's just, oh, there's just something about a different film on this list <laughs> that, that deals with similar themes 
I know what film you're talking about. <laughs> maybe slightly more engaging isn't the right word, but there's just something I agree a little extra you. there. I agree with you. Um, but not yeah. what's really bizarre though is it's not from the filmmaking perspective. It's not no. the direction. It's not the uh, you know. Yep. It's got fairly pedestrian direction, if you ask me. But other than a couple of sequences, so of everything on this list, there's not a better directed movie than Citizen Kane, in my opinion. Gone with the Wind might be close, but there's not a better directed movie with the sheer amount and the cinematography and yep. the the scope of this thing. This movie's untouchable, but there's something from a story perspective that just edges it out a little bit. I agree. Um, okay. Yeah, for me, well, well, go ahead. <laughs> for me, this is going to be um, this is going to be the third. Um, okay. And wow. I, yeah, I know. Okay. I thought about right. putting it in number two, um, but yeah, but for similar reasons, um, there's two other films that are just a little more emotional, emotional pulls for me. Um, okay. But yeah, from a technical element, yeah, this is incredible, of course. Um, as I would argue, actually, I'll all of the films, all films, sure. five films yeah. that we're going to talk about. And for a score, I will give this a nine, 9.0. Okay. That's fair. That's fair. I, wow. I think we're going to diverge. I uh, think so too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's move on. Let's talk about 1942's Casablanca. Announcing the 50th anniversary collector's edition video of Casablanca. Played once then, for all time's sake. He's looking at you, kid. Casablanca, 19.98 or less after $5 mail-in rebate with purchase of Taster's Choice. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Casablanca currently has a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was directed by Michael Curtis. It was a screenplay by Julius Epstein, Philip Epstein, and Howard Coach is based on Everybody Comes to Rick's by Murray Bur Burnett and Joan Allison. It was released January 23rd, 1943. On a budget of somewhere around a million dollars, it made about $4 million at the box office. This was the AFI uh, number two in 1998. Uh, the synopsis is... A nightclub owner in French-occupied Africa must navigate a world of limbo Nazis and old lovers. Lead the way here, because this is where I feel like we're going to diverge. <laughs> so I, I love, I unabashedly and unapologetically love Casablanca. I think this film is lovely and wonderful. And what's funny, what's really funny is when you start looking at the technical elements when you when you break down the dialogue when you break down the cinematography when you break down all those elements aside from the acting which i think is superb in this film but when you break down the other technical elements it doesn't really stack up against the other films the other films are far superior however what this <laughs> film has that i adore is is an emotional resonance and core that is so appealing and so entrancing and enchanting and I just love it. And I think this film, so every time I see this, and I've seen this many, many times, every time I'm like, it can't be as good as I remember. It just can't, <laughs> it can't. It's not gonna, I'm gonna watch it and I'm gonna be disappointed and I'm gonna be like, it's not as good, even though I've seen it many other times before. And 
every time I watch it, I am laughing. I am crying. I am engaged. It's like the first time I've watched it. And I just, it's like a new experience each time. And that to me is magical. And that to me is the beauty of cinema. And I just love it to pieces. And there's a reason it's so quoted. And there's a reason so many film, other films have referenced it. Like when Harry met Sally and you know, so many other films too. And I just, there's a reason because it is, there's just something alchemical about this the, it's magical. I love it. And I also really think this is an, a very interesting film in how it's balanced. It has a balance of romance mm. and a love triangle. It has a balance of suspense. It has a balance of politics and social justice. And it has a balance of comedy because I this yeah. is, I laugh out loud multiple times in this film, particularly because of Claude Rains, who is such a delightful actor. I adore him. And he is fantastic in this film. And so I love this. I think Ingrid Bergman is doing fantastic work. I think she is so incredibly subtle in her performance, which is really, really lovely and kind of unusual in the golden age of Hollywood. So many people yeah. are kind of bombastic and over the top yeah. and Humphrey Bogart is too, but she is very restrained. And I really appreciate that in this performance, especially because she is so torn because she loves these two men and she doesn't want to be in this position. And she's trying to think of her sense of duty and but yeah. her heart and they're competing and so it's just it's a wonderful performance and I love it and I just I adore this and I think I love the international cast I think that the, the yeah. casting is spectacular and I love hearing the multiple languages which really lend authenticity to the film and that you know everyone's a refugee here and uh and I mean, I could just keep gushing. The the La Marseillaise <laughs> scene that Laszlo leads when they're doing the German song, the yeah. German anthem, and then he's like, play La Marseillaise. And the band does, and then the whole club sings along with him. And I know that that is a take on Jean Renoir's um, film. He had a similar scene. I think it was in Le Grand Illusion. Um but I don't care. I love that scene. It makes me cry every time I watch it. And I am not a patriotic person by any means. But this kind of banding together, uh, you know, against fascism is lovely to see. And uh, I just, yeah, it gets my emotional heartstrings every time. <laughs> well, thank God we don't have to do a fascism anymore. We've covered that. We're done with it. <laughs> we solved it. Done. <laughs> yeah, it's done. Thank you, Lord. Um, the... Is this the most charismatic Humphrey Bogart ever was and ever has been? Oh, yeah. I mean, probably from what I've seen of his films. I've watched a, a, a goodly sum of Bogart, of Bogey. <laughs> I, I've never understood it. I've never understood the appeal. You know, no, I, I haven't either. I, I, you know, I grew up with a dad who I think loved Humphrey Bogart and mm -hmm. John Wayne, and I don't get either one of those people. <laughs> One of my dad's favorite movies was like my dad, my dad really loved African queen. Yep. Okay. Can't stand it. <laughs> um, his, you know, he loved Clint Eastwood, Humphrey Bogart and. Uh, oh, your, and your dad had a type. John Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think it's also like being a kid when those movies came out or growing up with those movies yep, and yep. those were kind of the guys, you know? Yeah. Um, the archetype. Yes. Yeah. And I just didn't, none of that has ever worked for Eastwood. I, at least I understood a little bit because at a certain point he kind of understood his own myth and kind of spent some time in some movies kind of either poking fun at it or deconstructing it. And then 
And then, then he went back to not understanding himself. No, no. <laughs> um, but exactly. there was a while there, like in the eighties and nineties, he kind of got it, right? He's like, ah, yeah, okay, yeah, good. Yeah, he's edging close, and then nope. Yeah, <laughs> it went the other way. So, like, I can. There's, 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 there are Eastwood films that are, are, I think are accessible. And that's the one where I've sort of gone, ah, okay, I get the appeal, right? And he is such a luminary figure that he basically created a whole archetype that people are still following yes. to this day. Yep. See Kurt Russell. Um, <laughs> at least Kurt Russell in the 80s, right? So, uh, but here's here's the thing. Bogart has never worked for me. I agree. I agree. I've seen him in a bunch of film noir and I'm like, this guy is not even a junior beef. <laughs> Nothing attractive about this guy. This is one of the ugliest men who's ever been on film. <laughs> he has no charisma. He basically <laughs> plays the same character in every movie. He's uh, just kind of a son of a bitch. And I get like that was probably, you know, the whole noir thing. That was probably, you know, very shocking uh, or revolutionary at the time to have your protagonist be such like a flawed bastard, drunkard <laughs> piece of shit. I don't believe that any woman in the history of the world has ever fallen in love with Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> They always cast him with these beautiful, gorgeous, silver age, golden age of Hollywood female figures, femme fatales or, or, or innocents. And they're always just like these absolutely drop dead, gorgeous, gorgeous in 1930, whatever, gorgeous in 19, you know, 2022. <laughs> just like these are some the most beautiful women, conventionally beautiful women who've ever lived. And they can't, they can't help but want to fuck Humphrey Bogart. And I'm like, that's Hollywood magic that's not real <laughs> if you told me humphrey bogart died a virgin i would believe you the man is just this Yikes. side of the ele just this side of the elephant man to me wow Terrible. and yet in this movie i think this is the movie that i've seen i've seen quite a bit that makes me go okay i get it yeah and here's the difference because he's a cynic you know, there's the cliche that a cynic is just a brokenhearted idealist. Yeah, not and entirely as, wrong. <laughs> as this movie unfolds and you, you, you get just little hints of his backstory, mm -hmm. what you realize is he's not really a cynic. Mm -mm. He's just brokenhearted. That, yes. And he's not really a bad guy. No. At all. He's actually a really upstanding guy. Mm-hmm. But he's stuck in this limbo, and um, his decisions to do continuously do the right things ha have cost him everything in his life. Yes, yes. And he's just basically almost a ghost. Ooh, and, good. Yes, good description. I agree. And then here she comes again. <laughs> right, she comes back. Yep. And what's being asked of him is, hey, you've already given everything for, the, for, for good, for the right cause. Mm -hmm. You sacrificed your love and personal happiness and your, basically your freedom and your citizenship and <laughs> you know, e everything, right? He's got yep. nothing except for this club. Right. And he doesn't really even want. He's not, no. he's not even really invested in what's going on here. It's just, it's just what he has to do to continue existing. Mm-hmm. And she shows up and is like, can you help me again? You got any more to give? <laughs> and of course his reaction is like, fuck no. I don't have anything left to give. You know what I mean? I got nothing left. It's very much like the giving tree. 
<laughs> yes, but that's it's so. Su- but that's when you. It's not really until you get towards the end of the movie that you realize that's what's actually happened. Yeah. Is no, he's not in, like that's the scene. Of course, was like, why don't you ask her why I won't help you? I love that scene. Ask love your it. wife. Love it. Because he already has. He's already done everything. Like, yep. like, like what they're basically saying is, will you be a martyr to get us out of this country? And it's like, <laughs> fuck no. No. And that is what works here is the yeah. subtlety of this movie. Agreed. One of the great scenes in this film is when the other young woman, I uh, forget her name, comes to Rick and is like. Oh, the um, Bulgarian uh, yes. newlywed. Yes, yes. Yes. And you don't exactly realize what she's saying. But the scene just kind of plays out, and she's like, um, you know, based like I hear you can help people get out of here, or maybe mm-hmm. maybe you could help me. And um, and she just alludes to it like, would it be wrong? <laughs> right? Uh, I know, yeah. You know, to sleep with another man. It was, it was just 1942, so she can't say that, but that's right. what she's saying. And you don't quite get it at first that that is what she's saying. But then about halfway through her little monologue, you're like, oh, oh, shit. And she's like, you know, if you never told him, if nobody ever knew, if, if it was a, just something you did because you had to do it and you were really doing it because you love this person and you were trying to save their life and all this mm-hmm. sort of stuff, like, would mm-hmm. it be wrong? Could you live with it and tell yep. me? And blah, blah, blah. And then his decision to basically be like, I'm not going to, there's no chance in hell this young woman's going to do this. <laughs> and the fucking newlywed husband doesn't have any idea what's going on. No. no. And Rick is going to do the right thing, and which is obviously could potentially put him at odds with uh, uh, Claude Rains. Yep. And knowing that this could really fuck him over because he's got this tenuous relationship <laughs> with all of this. And he does it anyway. Yes. And it's like, that's the turn where you're like, oh, that's who Rick that's is. That's who he really is. Right. Because all along yeah. he's been like, I don't stick my neck out for no one. Nobody. I, yeah, for nobody. I don't get involved in politics. I don't care about politics. When it's very clear, as we learn, you know, him running guns in Ethiopia and him fighting yep. against fascists in the Spanish War. Like, and clearly helping the Bulgarian couple. Like it's very clear. He consistently sticks his neck out and consistently cares. And that's really who he is, but he's trying to cultivate this personality of, I don't give a shit because I'm so heartbroken and I'm so distraught over my lost love. Yeah. And and, and, and the lost love and beyond that, like every time he has done the right thing. Yes, it's screwed it's come over. Great perso- yeah, it's coming great personal cost. Yes, absolutely. His nature is to do the right thing. So he's yes. pretending he wants to be a guy who doesn't do the right thing. <laughs> exactly. Because it's a, it's a coping mechanism. Yes, yes. It's a defense system. Yes. Which I and think- that's so much more interesting, yes. Megan. Than Bogart just being a piece of shit. You know I what agree. I mean? It's such an yeah. it's a fascinating deconstruction of toxic masculinity, and I think it's so intriguing and interesting. And that's why I love this film so much because there's so many layers to it. And every time I watch, I pick up something different, and I just yeah. I absolutely love that. And like I said, I, and it's funny. It and is it's funny, so like you said. Funny. Cla- yeah. My favorite scene with Claude Rains, and I love anytime he's on screen. But my favorite scene is when. 
um, the Nazi tells him he's got to close Rick's club. And he's like, okay, this club is closed. And yes. Rick's like, I can't believe you closed my club. And he's like, I'm shocked, shocked that gambling is going on here. And then the guy runs out and he's like, oh, here's your gambling winnings. And he's like, thank you. So, like, yes. so excited. Yes. <laughs> I just, yep. I love it. But there's so many scenes like that. It's His character is also really interesting because he's coded as, so he's someone who has who will trade sexual favors to help people, but that you're right. They can't talk about that because of the production code. And yep. he also is very much coded as a queer character based on how he talks about Rick and how he talks mm. about how he's like, Rick, the way she was talking about you made me jealous. And it's really, but he's also like, mm. it, it's just, it's such a fascinating layered, funny compelling depiction. And I think so much of that is the, is Claude Rains, but also the writing too. Well, he, yeah, the, the funny thing is, is he's, he's really only placating the Nazis. Yes. Because if they then get an advantage in the war, he'll just simply switch sides, right? Yes. So he's, he's like, he says as much, right? Yes, he's, he's yes like, he does. Oh, well, ba basically, he just represents whoever's winning at the time. Yep, yep. So he's just there to keep kind of everybody happy and doesn't really have any personal stance on anything other, other than... He's like the anti-Rick in a weird way, right? <laughs> well, that's what he seems. But then when push but comes then, to shove. <laughs> yes. But then by the end. Yes. Exactly. He sticks his neck out. He does yes. the right thing. He <laughs> saves the day. Yes. Which then gets to, you know, and then Bogart has an opportunity because his lost love is back. And she does realize, I mean, she's not realized, she's always known, but she does confess to him right. of like, you are the love of my life. Like I love my husband or whatever, but you also are the love of my life. And I will, I would leave with you. Yes. And so that's, you know, it's a cliche now, but <laughs> that's the point of at some point you're going to regret it. Right. At some point it, it, it's not going to work. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want I don't want to live with that. I don't want you to have to live with that. Mm -hmm. And so you go with him and I'll stay here. And, oh, um, yeah, it's, it's such a gut punch. He does it again. Yeah. Right? He self-sacrifices again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But at this point, he has a bit of a character arc because as he's walking off into the fog, <laughs> you know, and the very cliche line now of, I think this is the beginning of a, you know, beautiful friendship or whatever yes. relationship. What he's basically saying is, okay, now that, you know, I've now sort of come to peace with being who I am, who I am, which is I help people. Yes, exactly. And if you're willing to help people, then, you know, we've grown as people. <laughs> yes. I've, I've come back to who I really am and you have grown some kind of conscience. Mm -hmm. So I think we're going to be able to get along. And that's really what that's about, right? Yeah. Is, it's a know, beautiful the, ending. I love that. The, Rick was never not a decent person. He was no. pretending not to be yes, a decent person. exactly. So now he's back to who he really is. Mm -hmm. And Reigns, who, yeah, is trading sex for freedom, <laughs> somehow ends up being a protagonist at the end. It's very strange. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it, the other thing that, about this movie that's really wonderful is it's the shortest of all five. Oh, so such it's a delight. <laughs> So mercifully, it's like less than 90 minutes and it tells a complete story. And just like, it's very refreshing. So it is very um, much so. Only because of what it's stacked up against. 
I'm going to give this an 8.75. Still very high up there. Very high. It's going to be my number three. Ooh, it's just okay. middle of the road for me. I have a feeling it's going to be higher on your list, <laughs> higher in scores. What did you give it? I gave this a 9.5. And this is my number one. Whoa! Oh, no! <laughs> it is. I love it. I love it. Because, wow. because, like I said, every, and I keep coming back to this, I always think it cannot be as good on another watch, on another watch. And every time it blows me away. Ah, it's, it's such a gut punch. It's so rousing. Uh, it, it, I just love this. I, it's such an experience, and I love watching this film over and over. Do you, do you know two years ago on New Year's Eve, I watched it twice in a matter of 12 hours? <laughs> and it was, wow. it was the best New Year's Eve ever. <laughs> okay, Megan, do you know what this means? What does this mean? <laughs> Citizen Kane is my number two. Mm -hmm. Casablanca is your number one. Mm-hmm. What that means is we have eliminated, by default, Citizen Kane from cinematic history. <laughs> Fucking bullshit! Aw, that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's gone. Like, it is. It will not. It's gone. Oh, that's, that's sad. But I stand by my decision. <laughs> wow. So being added to the guest list, the very first entry on the first episode of a now fascist free <laughs> utopian society is Casablanca, a yes. movie all about subverting fascists. I think that's appropriate. Okay. Well, speaking of coded <laughs> for queer, let's talk about 1962's yes. Lawrence of Arabia, which currently has a 93% on Rotten Tomatoes. Lawrence and Arabia. Together they made history. Come on, man! Lawrence of Arabia, the motion picture that made great international stars of Peter O'Toole and Omar Sharif. Lawrence of Arabia, winner of seven Academy Awards, including Best Picture and 27 other international film awards. Starring Alec Guinness, Anthony Quinn, Jack Hawkins, Jose Ferrer, Anthony Quayle, Claude Rains, Arthur Kennedy, and as Ali, Omar Sharif, as Lawrence, Peter O'Toole. Lawrence of Arabia, unanimously acclaimed as one of the all-time great films. Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence Arabia was, of course, directed by David Lean with a screenplay by Robert Bolt and Michael Wilson. It is based on Seven Pillars of Wisdom by T.E. Lawrence. It was released December 10th, 1962 on a budget of $15 million. It made $70 million at the worldwide box office. Now, in 1998, this was ranked as the AFI number five. So, uh, we'll, we'll see, man. We'll see where this ends <laughs> up with Megan. Megan's throwing me some curveballs here. I love it. A, a complicated British lieutenant is sent among Arab tribes during World War I to wage battle against the Turks. All right, straight off the top, there's controversy over the historical accuracy of this film. Yes. There's controversy over the portrayal of Lawrence. Yes. There's controversy over Alec Guinness playing an Arab. Yes. There's controversy. <laughs> <laughs> so much going on here, which is, you know what is so bizarre? Okay. I, I, 
Lord help me. I'm not defending brownface. Oh, no. At all. But I sense a but. There's no but. Oh, okay. It's, it's wrong. <laughs> Period. Next sentence. Period. Next sentence. <laughs> Alec Guinness does a great job. He does. He's he a great excellent. actor. He's so humane and regal and intelligent and smart. Oh, is it that you think we are something you can play with? Because we are a little people, a silly people, greedy, barbarous, and cruel. What do you know, Lieutenant? In the Arab city of Cordoba were two miles of public lighting in the streets when London was a village. Yes, you were great. Nine centuries. It doesn't justify it. No. There's a dignity that he imbues the character with mm -hmm. that is kind of shocking. <laughs> Given the rest, and maybe, maybe it has to do with the fact that this was made in 1962 as opposed to 1932 or something like that. But there <laughs> I don't was know. just a, <laughs> it was just a general sort of, um, yeah, they're, 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 it would be very easy to present someone in sort of a barbaric way. And as I have to say, there aren't other people who are presented in a barbaric way in this film. I'm just exclusively saying. That I think the choices that Alec Guinness make mm -hmm. in the role imbue it with a certain humanity that is kind of odd, given the fact that he's in brownface. Does that make sense? <laughs> it it does. But yes, yeah, because brownface is so appalling and racist, and it's yet, fraught. and yet his depiction is not racist. Like what That's he's doing. That's what I'm getting yeah. at. It's like yeah. yeah, how him being brownfaced, hundred percent right. racist, racist casting. Yes. Yeah, yes. his casting racist. Yes. But then when he's given the role, yes. He almost goes out of his way to not be a stereotype or be racist Correct. at all. And it's bizarre. And it's and it's only yes. it's almost like he's like, Man, I shouldn't be in this role. <laughs> <laughs> but I am. So, so I'm, I'm gonna, gonna make, make the best of it. <laughs> Correct. I'm gonna make this a real person. Yes, exactly. Uh, with actual uh, intelligence and dignity and a human being. and Yes. But, yeah, it's it's inexcusable, especially by the 60s. My oh, my God. God. Yes. Well, I mean, that's it's, You barely saw that at this point. It's so strange. Well, it's like it's also so strange considering Omar Sharif is, was, is an Egyptian person or was an Egyptian person, and he's playing an Arab. So it's like, okay, you cast one person appropriately why couldn't you cast more appropriately it's very bizarre it's very bizarre there's well that's the other thing too there's a lot of other and obviously there's some other people there's hollywood's just weird it's like oh well you're mexican so you're Near oh, Eastern, anthony quinn right? yes yeah right <laughs> so jose okay. farrar you're you're a latinx person you can be turkish <laughs> yeah right it's just like bizarre right yeah. but then at the same time then they actually go find near eastern people yes to play, so it's like it's weird. There's no consistency. No, it's very weird. Where, yeah, whereas there's Latinx people playing Turks and Arabs, and then there's actual Arabs playing Arabs, yeah. and there's a white British guy playing an Arab. It's like, what the hell? It's very strange. It is um, weird. Is Peter O'Toole playing a queer character? I'm not asking you whether T.E. Lawrence was queer. Is Peter O'Toole? portraying a queer character a hundred percent without question do you did, did the filmmakers know that or is that what something peter o'toole was doing i think both 
I think mm. it was an intentional choice. I think Peter O'Toole is doing it. There are some coded, again, I mean, that's the thing with the Hayes production code. They mm-hmm. Hollywood had to be very particular, very sneaky and kind of yeah. working themes in. And yes, I think it was very intentional from what I like watching it. And then also from reading about the production. Yes. I yeah. think it, I think it was all intentional. Why? I don't know. What does that add to this? <laughs> I'm not against, I'm not for or against it. I'm just asking you, what does that add to the story of this guy? Because what's really interesting, right, mm-hmm. is that l- this movie, this is another one of those ones that's like a fraught conversation, right, is Lawrence in some ways represents both the myth of colonialism. Oh, yes. And the reality of it. Right. In the sense that, you know, he goes to his superiors is like, there's no other reason why we're creating this alliance. Like, you don't want land. Like, you're not trying to dominate these people. You just want to win a strategic battle in the First World War. And they're like, oh, we have no other plans, which is all bullshit. Sure. Right. Of course. Like, you're watching this and like, of course they have another plan. (laughs) And by the end of it, it's, it's all bullshit. Right. Right. And, you know, all these people have died and mm-hmm. and he kind of, I mean, just the whole thing of going through the desert and, and doing this absolutely crazy thing that he does <laughs> and uh, convinces other people to do. Yep. And for both seemingly altruistic and completely vainglorious reasons, yeah. like he's a very complicated figure of. Yes. What is ego? What is bravado? What is him trying yes. to please his masters versus what is him actually giving a shit about these people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't think he knows himself. No. And throughout the film, when people ask him questions, he's very evasive. And Ali at one point asks him like something about himself. And he's like, I don't know. And I don't think he does. I think he's incredibly oh, yeah. conflicted. And it seems like he was. Lawrence in real life was a conflicted person too and a complicated person as people all are. But yeah, so it seems like that is probably the most accurate thing about this film is that it's conveying his complications and contradictory natures and the fact that he didn't really know and he couldn't quite, yeah, couldn't quite come to a consensus about what he thought about all of this and about his role in it. You know what I was thinking when I think, you know, about British colonialism is I think of one of the, I don't know if it was no reservations or parts unknown, but it was um, one of Bourdain's travels. Mm -hmm. And he went to, I don't even remember the African nation, but he went to an African nation that was, had been under heavy, 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 heavy colonial rule basically. Mm -hmm. Um, and the people there that he talked to, he obviously him coming in as a kind of a more lefty Westerner, he had a certain assumption of what people were going to feel about that. Mm-hmm. And he gets there, and as far as the people he dealt with and spoke to, they missed the days of colonialism to a certain extent. Not the occupation per se, but the opportunity it brought them because they had a functional transportation system, they had a functional education system. Mm-hmm. They were a vacation destination. Uh, they had a thriving middle and upper class of indigenous peoples, um, all these sorts of things. And everything was in ruins. And he, you know, as Bourdain only could, he writes the sort of thing as like, 
uh, this is messy, right? This is really messy because yes. I come in with a certain implica- a certain sense of like, it's so much better that colonialism isn't here anymore. Yet the people here who I think would resonate with that are like, well, it's better in some ways and, and it's worse way in worse yeah. in other ways. Yeah. And which you, of course you could say that that's the long-term effects of colonialism. Cause even you know, when it ends, when, when you when you dominate another country like that, and when it ends, there's just a vacuum and everything crumbles right. because you're propping up. A, it's like a pseudo infrastructure, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We've seen that time and time and time and time again. Yes. And so people suffer worse after you pull out than they did <laughs> while you were there sometimes. Yes, yes. It's just insane, right? right? And that's very complicated. Mm-hmm. That's not an easy narrative to just be like, well, this is good and this is bad, so therefore... Real life doesn't work that way. And I think Lawrence represents that. I think he's yep. representing not just the historical person. I think he's representing that in some instances, British influence w- was good. And in a lot of influence, a lot of instances, it was terrible. Yep. And you can't reconcile that. It's both. And so I think Lawrence is both. I think there are things that he, I think he does care about these people, but he also doesn't. I think that he is trying to liberate them, but he's also using them. Mm-hmm. And the genius of this movie is it's not reconcilable. No. It's not reconcilable to the, to the people who are experiencing it. It's, it was not reconcilable for Peter Toole's version of Lawrence. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's been reconcilable in the real world for post-colonial places around the world. Mm-hmm. And that's where this movie, and then the thing is, the movie just kind of ends on that note of like, <laughs> man, you can't reconcile it. It right. is what it is. And I, <clears throat> a lot of people I've seen on Letterboxd um, hate this movie because of that, because it, it's very long. <laughs> it is very long. <laughs> and it's basically in the desert. For the most part, other than mm-hmm. a few treks here or there, there's a lot of sitting around doing nothing. <laughs> there's a lot of conversation. Yep. And it's not very clear. And, and the movie doesn't really hold your hand as to what you should think of Lawrence. No, it doesn't. And when you, after there's a scene where you're like, okay, I'm kind of on this guy's side. Then he kills somebody. You know, mm-hmm. and then you, and you're like, Jesus, man. Like, yeah. he, he kills the, and I think it all is all summed up in the fact that, he, yeah, he'll go back into the desert to rescue one person. Yes. It's a great and then scene. He'll ki- and then he'll kill him if he has to. Yep. And like, that's colonialism, right? It's like, yes. in a certain sense, yeah, there is a rescuing kind of element to it, but there is also this executionary element to it. And I think that's really what this movie is about. If I, if I had to summarize it all and where Peter Toole goes with like, I've just always been different than most people. Mm-hmm. And is that coded language for him being queer? What does that add to the story? Does, is, does that difference, like how do they thematically tie that together? I, I don't really know, mm-hmm. uh, but it definitely seems to be there and it definitely seems to be on purpose. Yeah. So this is a very, um, opaque film at times and uh i understand people not responding well to it uh i it probably could be cut down 
Um, <laughs> but it, there, this was how novels and memoirs were adapted at the time. Mm-hmm. Where it's almost like, we don't really write novels like this anymore. But if you've ever, I mean, I'm sure you have. You're very well read. Oh, well, thank you. If you ever tried to read a novel <laughs> from like the 40s and 50s and 60s, they're kind of long. And they're kind of <laughs> sprawling and meandering. And, then you know, you're like, what? I just read three chapters and it, nothing's really happened. And what is the, you know what I mean? Like, what is the point of this? It's just, just kind of. <laughs> but see, that's what I love. And it's, so I love Lawrence of Arabia. I think it's an incredible film. And oh boy, I, <laughs> and I don't care that quote, nothing happens in mm. many scenes because to me, whenever people say that to me, it's like, no, 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 no. That's when <clears throat> everything is happening. When you think mm. nothing is happening, that's when it's all happening. Like the character development or the, the revelations or the immersion in the environment. And I have to say the first, the very first time I saw this, um, was not actually not that long ago at a 70 millimeter film festival oh, in wow. Somerville, um, that's the way to see it. That is the way to see it. On the big yeah. screen, I was in the third row. It was incredible. Holy it moly. was such an experience. And I will say, rewatching it on a smaller screen, and I'm not someone who advocates you must go to the theater because that's not yeah. accessible to everyone. Um, but I You're will say. You're not Nicole Kidman? Uh... <laughs> yeah, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I will say, it is a very. there are certain films that it's a very different experience when you see it on the big yeah. screen. And Lawrence yeah. of Arabia is absolutely a different experience. The expanse of the desert, the overwhelming feeling of it the isolation of it you really get to feel overwhelmed by when you're watching it on the big screen um the, yeah freddie a young cinematography is absolutely exquisite especially when you think about how and i was reading this um i was reading roger ebert writing about this film talking about how sand was getting into all of the cameras because of course yeah, it was right but the fact that this looks so perfect and so gorgeous and then also the editing by ann Coates is incredible i mean the incredible. shot the flame going out and then cutting to the sunrise is just it's gorgeous it is yep. a gorgeous gorgeous cut beautiful and i i love that film for that and something else roger ebert said when he was writing about this was that this is a film that a lot of people won't necessarily remember the narrative but they'll remember how they felt watching it or they'll remember mm. the cinematography or they'll remember the desert and this really is i think more than many other films it is a film to be experienced to just let it kind of wash over you and i had that in one of my notes love I, it. I, I, I just, but this is this is more immersion yes in story absolutely yeah. absolutely I, I watched it on my couch in a 55 inch television and i felt like i was sweating as i was watching it i was just like <laughs> I, you, you feel like you're in the desert. You do, yeah, 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 absolutely. And I love that. I also, the thing I find so interesting about this film too is, especially in the first half of the film or before the intermission, it, you're very much on Lawrence's side and you're like, yep. and yes. despite your feelings about colonialism, you know, yep. you're like, oh, well, he's trying to help. He's trying to do something. He's one of the good, good ones. Yeah, like, okay, <laughs> he's, you know, yeah. maybe he doesn't have the right tactics, but he really means well. He's got good intentions. But then by the second half, yep. oh my God, he just becomes so bloodthirsty yep. and he loves the violence. And he, I mean, the scene where, like, where they're at the town right before they take Aqaba and Ali hesitates while Lawrence like just bolts mm. in and starts slaughtering people. And Ali is horrified, absolutely horrified. And yep. that, and that he has to stop him from just 
like murdering people. It is such an interesting commentary on depictions of Arab people, on Orientalism, Mm -hmm. on colonialism, on the white savior narrative, on the Messiah complex that Lawrence has. Oh, I had that in there too. I had that in tears. T.E. Lawrence is 100% a false messiah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and there's the film absolutely underscores that too because the scene... Um, somewhere in the film where they won a battle and he's in his white robes and he's standing on a train and yes. he's like spinning around and they're chanting yes. and I'm like, oh, he's like Jesus. This is a Messiah. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And it's definitely deconstructing that, especially in the second half of the film where it's like- Well, especially as ugh. you think about, uh, which is just absolutely bizarre. Okay, I don't want to get too off the rails here. <laughs> but when you think about Judaism and Christianity be ancient, being ancient Near Eastern religions, mm-hmm. right? Along yep. with, you know, the Islam. Yes, the Abrahamic religions. And, correct. Then sort of making their way through Europe over the centuries. Mm-hmm. Then becoming part of the British Empire through Anglicanism. Yeah. And then you know, the English Reformation, all that, Thomas Cranmer, all that sort of stuff. And then part of the <laughs> impetus of, of, or the justification for the British Empire going and conquering the world, reconquering the Roman Empire, mm-hmm. is a divine mandate to bring civilization and the light of civilization and the light of virtue and the light of Christianity back to the world, et cetera, et cetera. And going back to the cradle of those religions <laughs> and being like, well, no, <laughs> our version is right. Not yeah. your, ver- and so when you realize, like that's mixed in there too yes. of this erudite yes. white savior, yep, who is yeah, a hundred percent intentionally dressed in very messianic sort of, and even the way that the early on, the way that they lift up his name and yes. sort of praise yes. him and chant his name, yes, and and the way that the young boys sort of serve him and all that sort of stuff, yes. definitely. He's embracing this messianic mentality mm-hmm. of like, I'm your savior. I'm here to save I'm you. I'm the only one who can Correct. who can save you. And I'm the only one who can bring about your freedom. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And then where it turns and you realize, and I think that's a great, again, a great metaphor for the British Empire, yes. which is yes. we're here to bring you salvation and civilization in our ways. And therefore, you know, we're going to lift you up out of the mud, basically. And then to be like, actually, the real bloodthirsty savage is the empire yep it's you it's you it's lawrence yep right yeah where 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 the arab folks the the bedouin people are like disturbed <laughs> at his rightfully love of violence oh so, yeah right yeah rightfully yes. so and even lawrence himself admits that he loves it yep yeah. And he admits to his officers like a psychopath that he loves the violence. And they're like, well, you're doing a great job for us out here, old chap. And they just send him back. Yeah, and we're like, we're going to promote you. A, <laughs> yeah, he has a question of conscience where he's like, I don't know that I should be out. Yeah, here. don't put me back out there. Yeah. Because there's something wrong with me. Like yes. it's, it's I'm not, I can't, like, I, and they're like, no, 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 you're fine. And he's like shaking. He can't drink. He can't. Right. You know, he's like, I love blood. I love murder. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, they're like, ah, go back. They promote him and go, ah, go back. Yeah. And then also, you know, I'm saying he's a sympathetic character because he accepts it and he goes back. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm I it's also I think without Casablanca and uh this, you don't have Star Wars. (laughs) There's so much of this, it's like, oh, 
Really? I mean, the, yeah. the first Star Wars film is kind of the poor man's Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> Most Eisley is Casablanca, 100%. Yeah, I was going to say Rashomon and Casablanca yep. and Lawrence of Arabia. Hidden Fortress. Hidden Fortress. And... Like, yeah, it's matching them all together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have John Ford, Akira Kurosawa, uh, and uh, uh, David Lean. Yes, and, exactly. Which is why I, th- I thought it was so strange that uh, in Prometheus, the one movie that the David, the <laughs> automaton, is obsessed with is Lawrence of Arabia. Because David is uh, very much sort of, a, if a robot could be queer, David is queer. Oh, yeah, he is. He's a villainous queer, unfortunately. Yeah. That trope, which is awful. But anyway. Oh, well, we don't have to. Yeah. I'm no fan of uh any of those no i there's one <laughs> scene there is one scene i love in that film but that's it <laughs> yeah and then alien covenant oh my god what a train wreck oh but god, anyway that's a disaster <laughs> i'll do the fingering it's like now we've just gotten uh, into like no. camp almost Ugh. gay camp yeah no it's terrible 85 <laughs> year old ridley scott pretending he knows what the gays are into it's very strange oh ridley <laughs> Oh, Ridley. Speaking speaking of objectifying, uh, let's objectify some people here. (laughs) Peter O'Toole. (sighs) Where do you you rank him? Let's objectify Uh, him. He does nothing for me. Nothing. 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 Absolute junior beef. This guy, I don't understand. Because at a certain point... They really were presenting Peter O'Toole in the the matinee era as being like a sex symbol. Yeah. I'm just sort of like... Here's here's what I'm getting at. You could be a pretty average white guy <laughs> in Hollywood yes. in the 30s and then be like, this guy's sexy. And and I think everybody was just like, I guess he was. <laughs> like, but I, I mean, we, ha- we haven't talked about actual sexy men from the 30s, like Cary Grant or like Gene Kelly. Like, <laughs> I, well, they're not on this This list. is true. This is true. But anyway, I digress. Yeah. yeah. But wait a it's, minute. I will say that Omar Sharif, who- That's the next one on my Thank list. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I love Omar Sharif. I love him in Funny yep. Girl, and I love him in Dr. Zhivago, and I love him in this. He is amazing. He is so intense and charismatic yes. and- Yes. What could have been such a throwaway small role? A hundred percent. He makes the most of and imbues so much personality and energy into. And he, I mean, he was just such an amazing actor, and he is so good in this. Love him. Love him. He's wonderful. I would say that he is definitely uh, at least three beef deep. He is. <laughs> I'd, I'd agree with that. <laughs> as soon as he comes on the screen, you're like, first, you first of all, you can't take your like, eyes off him. He's oh, mesmerizing. Yeah, that's, that's a that's a good looking man. <laughs> he's good looking, and yeah. then then he opens his mouth. He's like, oh, and he's talented. Yes. And, yes. And yeah, and the charisma mm-hmm. is, and then like next to like, just. Very little, slight British Peter O'Toole. It's just sort of like, can we make the movie about that character? Right? <laughs> I mean, like, Peter O'Toole's fine. He's kind of... He's fine. He, yeah, he's fine. But, uh, yeah, no, give me Omar Sharif. The, that's when the film comes alive for me. Is really when he's on screen. Because he's just so good. So magnetic. I love him. I don't know that he ever... Do you think he's ever got his due? I mean, he was huge in Egypt. So I think in Egypt he did, but in the States, no. I Because like no. he's in a lot of good movies. Yeah, he he's is. He's good in everything. Yes. And he's fucking gorgeous. <laughs> so I don't under... It has to be... 
racism, right? That's the answer, right? Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> is that the, America wasn't ready for a very good-looking Egyptian man Yes. to be a leading man, right? Yes. I mean, there are, I mean, like, I have read so many articles, like, praising him. And so there's definitely a huge fan base still today for him. But, yeah, yeah but I, I, I agree with you. I just, I, <laughs> I think that... Too many people are trying to shove Humphrey Bogart down her throats or Clark Gable. That's what I mean. And you have not Humphrey Bogart, Omar Sharif. And you have Omar fucking Sharif. There are scenes, okay, there are photos, right, of Omar Sharif in a tuxedo, and you're like, that's fucking James Bond. As he should you have see been. Humphrey, you see Humphrey Bogart in a tuxedo, you're like, that's a bag of old mashed potatoes. <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't get it. I mean, never underestimate the power of white male mediocrity. <laughs> now, look, look, Harrison Ford, especially back in the day. Uh, okay, wait. Gorgeous. Okay, man, wait. Right? If we're talking about Harrison Ford, like, whoo Harrison <laughs> yeah, Ford. Gorgeous hello. man. Yes. Right, right. But Omar Sharif is Han Solo? He could do it. Ooh, Omar Sharif? He could have. Oh, my God. Wow, you're blowing my mind here. <laughs> Omar Sharif as a James Bond figure? Yes, he put, him in done it. It. put him in James Bond. <laughs> yeah, holy shit. Like, yes. And it's just, what a revelation, man. Because yes. you're right. As soon as that guy shows up, it's like we're in a different movie. Completely, completely. And if you think I'm just completely out of my gourd, <laughs> If you go to Google right now and you Google Omar Sharif, I swear to, to the Lord above, the one, two, three, four, fifth adjective that they Google suggests that, that we'll add this to it, right, to, for a search, mm -hmm. is handsome. Because he is. <laughs> it's Javago, actor, Lawrence, son, handsome. Yes. <laughs> he is gorgeous. Yeah, he's a striking individual on most. And the older levels. he got, like we was, you know, he became kind of more dignified and rugged in his looks. Mm -hmm. But he was he's still attractive in his older older years. Yeah. Just uh, the fifth thing that comes up is <laughs> handsome. And you're trying to sell me Peter O'Toole as a sex symbol? <laughs> what are we talking about here? Al Pacino? Sure. Right? Young Al Pacino, yeah. Yeah, young Al Pacino. Yeah. Not Dunkachino, no, Al Pacino. No. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a Godfather Al Pacino? Yeah. Every day, twice on Sunday, mom's gravy, right? <laughs> but Omar Sharif. But still give me Omar Sharif. <laughs> absolutely. Clark Gable? No. What? Get no. the fuck out of here. All right, so what's the score? What's the rank for you now that we've thoroughly objectified Omar Sharif <laughs> and the very dead Peter O'Toole? He's yes. dead, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shit. I should know. Um, I'm pretty sure. Um, yeah, he died, he, he died about 10 years thank ago. Thank you. So I was like, I thought right. so. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is going to be, so this is going to be my fifth. And I would give this really, yeah. Well, no, because I can't have everything be number one. Because yeah, so true. here's the thing: I have to give all my rankings a caveat that if it were up to me, these would all be equal. Like I do, I think all of these are brilliant films. I think these are all great. It, like it's splitting hairs as far as I'm concerned. Um, yeah, we're in the we're in the upper echelon yeah, of like all time great yeah, movies. Yeah. Right, exactly. For it's, for one reason or another. Right. I mean, the only reason yeah. I would say this is lower than the other ones for me is because it's not as enjoyable of a rewatch and yes. the yeah. brown face is oof. 
Yeah, and it's tough. It's a complicated film, and yep. the, you know there are some problematic depictions of Arabs, although there are also yep. some great depictions. And so it is a complicated film, and it's you know, it's commenting on a complicated situation, of course. So that for me is why it's it's lower than the other films. But technically, again, from a technical standpoint, it is brilliant. It is a masterpiece. So yeah, so that's why it's five for me. And what's your score? Oh, sorry. Remind me. <laughs> I you might have given it. No, I didn't. Um, it's a. 7.8, just slightly behind Gone with the Wind, just because I love Gone with the Wind for my own reasons. <laughs> I see. I, this is completely fair. For yeah. me, I give this an 8.5 out of 10. It's my number four. Nice. Most of the 8.5 is coming from the immersion of it. Yeah. The, I mean, I don't know that there's, there's a lot of very beautiful sort of widescreen oh, cinemascope sort of films. Gorgeous. This shots. may be the best of all time. Yeah, this may be, this may be the best use of like that seventy millimeter, ever. Absolutely, ever, ever, ever. I and, would completely uh, agree with that. I mean, you know the the you know every scene a painting or you know the one shot or yes. whatever. you could take almost any shot in this movie. And it's like it's, it's work stunning. Of art. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. So for I mean that that's the thing about all of these movies is they all have something about them. If the, even if it isn't the whole package, well, this narrative isn't as interesting right. or that character. Right. Or, this is racist. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> There's a lot of them. But <laughs> they all have a legacy for a reason. Yes. There's not one of these movies is like, this should never have been on the list. Like for right. a, a filmmaking perspective, you, Absolutely. you could make some argument morally, but you can't make that argument filmmaking wise. So I completely, completely agree with you. And maybe right. if Omar Sharif starred in it, I'd give it a much higher <laughs> score. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, you know, the thing is, like we said, I understand what they're going yes. for with the Lawrence yes. character. Yes. Uh, but it's... Yes. Um, and David Lean he, did give Omar Sharif his own film the next time. So there's that. <laughs> yeah. Omar Sharif, Omar Sharif Pre Appreciation Club. Let's get, let's get it going. Love it. Come on, whiteies. <laughs> get on the Sharif train. <laughs> Those of you that are left... <laughs> Very few. Um, let's move on to 1972's The Godfather, yeah. which currently has a 97% on Rotten Tomatoes. The Godfather is now a movie from Paramount, rated R. The Godfather, of course, was directed by Francis Ford Coppola, and it stars most of his relatives. <laughs> With a screenplay by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola, it is based on The Godfather, which I have on good authority, is not a good novel by Mario Puzo. It was released March 24th, 1972, on a budget of about $7 million. It made $287 million. I'm guessing that's going to be cumulative. It was, in 1998, AFI's number three. Let's figure it out. But you can probably figure out by process of elimination where it's going to rank. <laughs> The cyclical story of a family stained by generational sin and criminality. All right. So um, yep. obviously this is going to be uh, my number one because it's the last one left. <laughs> I haven't named a number one yet. This is obviously not going to be your number no, one. No, it's my number two. Why did it fall short? So, I mean, this is a great film. Like I have seen this film many, many, many times. And it's an, it is another film very much like uh, Gone with the Wind that I've watched since childhood and rewatched many times. And 
the cinematography again i feel like a broken record every every film we talk about the cinematography is gorgeous the usage of shadows and light feels very noir-esque which i love and i know that the cinematography was used that way to indicate the morality and the duplicity of the characters which i think is Mm. fantastic i love the score um i think al pacino is fantastic in this so good um some of the other performances <laughs> not uh, as good g- g- give me an example as to who uh talia shire <laughs> <sighs> okay i'm a big rocky fan right i love rocky as well and i love talia shire in some of those movies yeah adrian yes i agree with that i think the first one she's actually quite good yes but it's not just the writing because I've seen enough of her movies to know it's a choice at a certain point. Yes. <laughs> Talia Shire had this go-to acting choice, which is basically being Karen in that scene from Goodfellas. Yes. Being Elaine Bracco, who's just oh, like, but you Laura, know. Lorraine Bracco is so good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, Lorraine Bracco. I, I think I said Elaine. Lorraine Bracco. But it's like, that's what she does throughout many of her movies, where it's just like, you bastard! <laughs> and also, is that, the fact, is that just the fact that she's screaming? It's the fact that if you look at her face while she's screaming, the face does not match the level of emotion. No, no. So she has a flat affect while she's supposedly yes. hysterical. Yes. And then you just look at her like, this is not a good performance. No, I don't believe you. <laughs> I don't believe you. And I love Talia Shire, okay? Um, she's not good in this movie. No, she's not. <laughs> and, and and like I'm not the world's biggest Jimmy Kahn fan. I think he's, he's good actually in good movie. in this. Yeah, I think he's, he's good quite in good this in this. Movie. Yes, I agree. Um, I'm not the world's biggest Marlon Brando fan, especially in the latter years of his life. Mm. How do you think he is in this? He plays, okay, it's really hard to talk about this without also kind of dipping into Godfather 2 territory, right? Mm-hmm. Because that's where we really get to know a lot more of like the Corleone story and Vito and all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Let's pretend that that movie doesn't exist. All we have <laughs> is this, this movie, yep. right? He's essentially the most virtuous criminal who's ever lived. To the point that there's a line in the beginning of the movie where he's like, you know, trust this to somebody who knows how we do things because we're not murderers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, Godfather 2 just throws it out the window. <laughs> <laughs> but that, that is, that's part of the point of this story, right, is mm-hmm. that he is an immigrant who does, and he says as much, right? Like, we were never going to be able to have anything. Right, right. Because this country was never going to let us have anything. So we had a, I had to take it. In the hopes that I could, I had to become illegitimate. In the hopes that, especially Michael, who's the only one he gives a shit about, really. Uh, yeah, I I do love that at the at his daughter's wedding, yes, he yes. will not take a family photo Correct. until Michael arrives. I was like, well, now we clearly know who his favorite is. But that tells you everything about <laughs> everything, the family dynamic. Everything, and that's that is, I think, the brilliance of this film is that yes. there are small moments like that that you learn. Every single thing you need to know about that character. Everything. And he tells Michael, right? Yeah. When, when Michael has to become basically the godfather. Vito's like, I don't, 
I did not, and I do not want this for you. I know. It's actually really sad. It's very sad. Yeah. Because he's like, all the terrible things I've done were in the hopes that my kids wouldn't have to do them. Exactly. Sonny's a fuck up is a hothead. So there's no other life for him. It's what he says, basically, yeah. right? Fredo goes, is also Sonny. a fuck up. Yeah, and he goes, and he goes, Fredo's Fredo. Yeah. Right? He's a fucking dummy. There's nothing else this guy could ever yeah. do, right? But you, you were never supposed to be a part of this. Right. The filthy part of this. If anything, I want you to take it all legitimate. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be involved in drugs. I don't want to be involved in murder. I don't want to be involved in no mob wars yeah i want you to i want you to really do olive oil you know mm-hmm. not just as a front but really i want you to really grow a business yes and leave all this shit behind and it can't it doesn't happen <laughs> boy does it, it not happen and the thing is is like you really believe that yes you really believe that Vito is like i don't want my kids Especially Michael, anywhere near this business. Yeah, uh, yeah, you absolutely believe that, and I think that that is why I love this film so much because it is such a condemnation of the myth of the American dream and how yep. it's a crack of shit. And I love that. Yep. I love that. One of my favorite favorite scenes, and this was—I I wish I could remember where I saw a deconstruction of this, but it, it was a video essay somewhere. Could have been every frame of painting. Could have been somewhere else. But anyway, sure. It was about. It was looking at the scene where the car is driving up and the feet, the wheat, like the yellow grass, the wheat behind it. And then the back of the statue of Liberty and how it's because it's the back of the statue of Liberty. It's like, it's like freedom and Liberty has like turned its back on this. And it's just, it just was, it's such a great shot visually and thematically. And throughout the film, there are so many touches. Like you see the American flag repeatedly, you, you know, right in the very beginning of the film talking about how I was a good American or, you know, I called the yes. cops the way I was supposed to and I didn't get justice. And so it's just constantly the film is looking yeah. at how the American dream is a myth yep. and it's a, it's bullshit and it fails you and you have to take measures into your own hands. And maybe, what? you know, maybe you do, become a criminal maybe you don't but it, it, yeah it just it's how it just doesn't work well let's look at michael right michael's a war hero mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right went to college went to college educated mm-hmm. yep sh- doesn't have any real relationship with his family at the beginning of the movie no shows up to the wedding when we first see him is completely at a different table separated <laughs> from everybody yes. right yes which is everything you know about his character and he shows up with the waspiest woman <laughs> Seriously, though, okay, he possibly is. could. Yes. And then through the course of the movie, he's sitting there with a guy who isn't even Italian, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. who speaks more Italian than him. Yes. He can't speak an Italian. Mm-hmm. He he gets frustrated, you know, and he has to ask the other guy who's not Italian how to speak <laughs> Italian, what the words he's like. So finally, he just breaks down and speaks English because he's Vito, and which is the the true story of every immigrant family. Italians, Italians included, which is you're in America now. Right. You, you know, some families were like, you only speak Italian in the home. Mm-hmm. Other families were like, we will not teach our children the, our language because they're not in Italy anymore. They're in America. Right. We want and to the only way to survive in this country yep. is to blend the fuck in, to exactly. assimilate. Yep. Because otherwise, you're going to be in a ghetto for the rest of your life. 
And that was, and so like, but they don't ever really co completely come out and say that's why he doesn't speak Italian. But that's, that's the implication is that he's absolutely, you know, he just wants, Vito wants something more than like, I want my kids to be good Americans, be good Americans, be good Americans. And, and maybe if I am not a good American, but I do, I got to do to survive. They, they, and also the disillusionment of like all of these fucking politicians. Yeah. They're all corrupt. Yep. Every, every, everybody, everybody's a piece of shit around them. <laughs> Everyone. There's no one good. <laughs> and so then the Corleone family, who are not good people themselves, no. end up becoming pretty sympathetic characters, most of them. You know, especially Vito and especially Michael. And yes. where it's like, you can tell he, he doesn't not, he truly doesn't want a part of this life. Initially, no. No, he now, doesn't. And then... Through the attempted murder of his father. Yes. Even then, he's just trying to kind of mediate it and keep his father alive. He doesn't really want to be involved. But Sonny is such a fucker. <laughs> he's such the wrong guy to lead the family. He really is. Yeah. But he throws them into the. And so, you know, and then when he, get, again, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Like you yep, said, yep. the moment Michael gets a taste of it, he not only steps into Vito's role, but he's more bloodthirsty and ruthless, yep. and, ruthless and corrupt. Yep. And all of the boundaries that Vito set up are gone. Yes. Yes. I would say though, I think it happens even earlier though. I think it's, mm. I think it's at that hospital scene, which is such a great scene when everyone's gone and he's like frantically yeah. going through the hospital. I think it's at that point that he's like, I can't trust anybody to take care of my father. I have to do it. And I, yes. so I think that's cause I kept thinking about it. And as many times mm. as I've seen it, I'm like, why, what, where's the turn for him? What was the appeal? Because right from the start, we see Vito can't even enjoy a wedding. He's constantly working. People are constantly coming to him for favors or yep. to ask him for things or to make decisions. And it's, it's, a, it's hard. It's not, I mean, yes, he's getting lots of money and whatnot and has a lavish lifestyle, but it's not a relaxing lifestyle. And you're constantly having to watch your back. Who's going exactly. to turn gonna fuck you me in? Over next. Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So that's, so I, I kept thinking like, why would Michael do this? And mm. I keep coming back to the hospital scene that that's where I think where he's just like, I can't trust anybody else. Even the well-intentioned people, I have to do it myself. And I think that's really where it comes from that impetus and that drive. But yes, but he absolutely becomes power hungry without question, because when we see him the happiest is when he's in Italy with Apollonia yes. and, the, and like the cinematography is completely different. It's all golden lighting. It's all very beautiful. It feels very idyllic and pastoral. And that's where he's really happiest. But except for there's a little crack in it, which is. That is true. Yes. When he approaches the father. Yes. Yes. And he approaches it. Because yes. at the very beginning, he tells the story of, you know, make him an offer. He can't refuse, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. And he says it almost ashamedly. Yes. Yes. Right. And he's like, that's my family. Right. Right. That's him. Like, that's what they do. I don't want a part of it. Uh, that's but not me. That's not yep. me, but that's them. Right. But then he's in Italy and he basically does the same thing, right? Yes. He basically is like, you know, very cold and very sort of like, do, do you know who I am? <laughs> yes. Right? No, he does. He does. This is why I'm here. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to, I'll give you this valuable information about me. Do with it what you will, mm -hmm. but I'm going to take your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is so 
creepy, but yes, you're a hundred percent correct. And you're like, that's the first time where you're yeah. really like, Oh yeah. Yeah. This isn't just like a one-off. I've avenged my father. Right. And now I want to live a peaceful life. This is who this guy is. Exactly. Exactly. Like it's, he, there's no going back at that point. Mm-hmm. And then if you think maybe Ken, they just blow her the fuck up. I know. Oh. And you're like, that's it. That's like the death of, and, and the question I've always wondered is why the hell does he go back to Diane Keaton? That is a what? great question. Do you, do, you, do you know why? Like they have no, first of all, uh, <laughs> nothing against Diane Keaton. They have no. zero chemistry. No, she, no, Diane Keaton is lovely in many other films, not in this film. And no. she's much better in the second one, I will say. Um, yes. But yeah, but no. I got an abortion. I love the abortion scene. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but yes, no, they have zero chemistry here. And I think, I think, and again, I think this is one of the beauties of the film is that you kind of have to glean a lot from things mm-hmm. that are kind of said, unsaid, what have you. I think it was that he was like, I'm ready to start an empire. I'm ready to hit the ground running. I need heirs. I need a wife. Here we go. Here's a wife. Let's get started. Like, so I, you, I think it's you more think a business he, transaction for him. Wow. Yeah. So you think is also maybe he had the love of his life because it's yes. very clear that he really did love Apollonia. Y- yes. Yes. Very clear. And then this life has taken her from him. Yep. So at this point, you might as well just dive all the way into that life. <laughs> That's what I think. It feels very you know calculated. I mean? and, yeah. And you might you might as well have somebody you don't really give a shit about. Right. Like <laughs> because he, you're never he's never gonna love anybody no, like he loved her. No, but he doesn't like hate Kay. Like he's you know he clearly no. was dating her, so he's like, yeah, I like her. I don't care about her, but yeah, she's okay. She's upstanding as far as a citizen goes. <laughs> so yeah, let's do this. Uh, let's know, make it happen. Yeah, another theory I've heard sort of posited, Ooh, yes. and, th- and this is what's great about this because you see, you have to glean a lot of this stuff from Absolutely. it. Absolutely, is that she represented to him in a sense like the last time he was normal. Ooh, that's I like that too. Yeah, his and so it's like, yeah, as he feels himself going down kind of the rabbit mm-hmm. hole. Yep, yep. He's like trying to still almost convince himself, like I, I'm doing this stuff. But I'm still, still me? war hero. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still I'm still an outsider, right? I'm still yeah. I'm inside. I'm but but there's still there, that part of me still exists, right? And he's like going back to her. And another thing that was brought up, my significant other brought this up. She said, um, when he shows up, she asked him, like, you know, where where have you been? Or I haven't mm-hmm. heard from you. And he says something like, uh, yeah, or well, how long have you been back? She says. And he's like, a year, maybe more. Which is a very odd way of saying very it. Very weird, yes. But Vito says something to the effect of, like, I got to find a way. Like, I'll make peace with everybody here. It is what it is, yada, yada, yada. I got to get my kid back. Mm-hmm. And my kid's going to have to face some consequences for the decisions he's made. Yep. But if anything were to happen to him, if he slips and falls, or if he dies and commits suicide, whatever, I, basically, I'm killing all of you. <laughs> right? <laughs> very much a veiled threat, Yes. But he says that he's going to have to face some consequences. Are mm-hmm. we to assume that he went to jail for a year and some change? And that's why no one's Ooh. heard from him. I don't know. That's and that's why he doesn't too. really know how long he's been back because he came back and went to jail. He had to serve, yeah. which for killing a cop in the middle of a you know <laughs> crowded restaurant would still be like. A year is like nothing. <laughs> nothing. Right. Right. But yeah, did he have to serve a year in some change in jail for yeah. for 
but to keep, you know, whatever, to keep the peace or whatever. That would completely make sense too. I think but all of that great, makes sense. That's the great thing about this movie, yes, right? Yes, yes. Is that Agreed. it's open, but not in a way where it's like, you don't get the sense that they don't know. Right. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know. Like, no, they want Dam- you to piece it together. Correct. Yeah. Damon yeah. Lindelof didn't write the movie to where you're like, I don't think they, I don't think they know. Right. <laughs> it's interesting, but I don't think he really knows. I don't think he, he's got some great questions. I don't think he knows the answers. <laughs> this feels like the movie knows the answers and is like playing its cards close to the chest and is just sort of like completely slightly tipping its hand just enough for you to be able to follow along. Mm-hmm. And that's why, of course, it's my number one, just being out Citizen Kane, because I do like the cinematography, although I think direction-wise, it's adequate, but it's not consistently remarkable. Uh, I would agree with that. The casting and acting, other than Talia Shire, is pretty great. Yeah, John Cazal, who we haven't talked about, is amazing. You know, they, maybe the best, some of the best character actors in a movie mm-hmm. ever. Great. Agreed. I mean, Clemenza... Uh, uh, Luca, Brazzi, all of these, mm-hmm. like, these are all famous, like, like the nobodies in the movie have iconic lines. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's not just the dialogue, it's how they deliver it. Completely, completely. And it didn't hurt that they went out and got some real mob guys <laughs> in this movie. <laughs> well, I mean, there is a reason that they Damn. wanted an Italian-American yeah. director on this film to lend yeah. some authenticity, so... Yeah, there and there are a lot of touches that make this feel very real. So, which is great. It, it's and the thing is, it's such a perfect morality tale. Yes, the rise it, it, and I fall. Mean, <laughs> the, I mean, the fact that the movie is called The Godfather. Who does that apply to? Is that Vito or is that Michael? It's both. Uh, you would say so, right? The whole thing is a cyclical story of. Yes. At the, the, I mean, the movie ends with him like, "I'll never, I won't." Just one time, you can ask me anything; I won't lie to you. He fucking lies straight to her face. I have no. to say, holy shit, this is one of my absolute <sighs> favorite film endings. Oh my god! Ever the shot of her, of him framed by the door, and then the closing of the door on Kate's face. The stooge, ah, yeah, the mob stooge coming up and just I looking at her, it. shutting the door in her face, and just standing there. Love like, it. Everything that that ended. Indicates that she's completely shut out. She's completely cut off. And he is a completely different person than who he represented himself to be. It is brilliant. Absolutely fantastic. Love it. She's never, what's amazing is right. What attracted him to her, we can assume Mm -hmm. is that she was not a part of that world. whatsoever, Any way, shape or form. Right. Now the thing that alienates them from each other, which obviously two delves into more, yes, is that she is not a part of that world whatsoever, <laughs> and he will. And now he is. He he was he was by birth, but now he is by choice. Yes, yes. and he will never let her in. Right, but she'll yeah. always be the outsider. And where as he he was with her and was as an outsider with her at the beginning, he's left her alone to be an outsider at the end. Mm-hmm. And what a fucking, yeah, maybe one of the greatest endings of all time. Such a great ending. I love Engrossing this. story. This yes. movie is long as fuck. And it, it honestly, when this movie ends, if they give me another hour, I wouldn't <laughs> care. That's how I feel. The movie ends and I'm like, you could just fire up another hour of this. <laughs> and I wouldn't care because there's so much, like, it's, 
there's it's like stories within stories mm-hmm. within stories because it takes place over such a long period of time and and um I know a lot of people think that Godfather 2 is a superior film. I don't. I do not. Yeah. I think the first I think one God, is I wish they would have just split Godfather 2 into two separate films. And hmm. uh, because the cutting back and forth to me doesn't like doesn't work as well. Mm-hmm. Um the Robert De Niro the, scenes are far superior. Yes. Yeah. I think all of the going to Cuba and this, that, it's like, it's so convoluted. You're like, what? <laughs> I, I would much rather, if that's going to be a movie, I'd much rather have that be the third one and have the second one almost be a prequel, you know, the, the Robert Zero stuff. That totally makes sense. I, there's enough for two movies there. Oh, absolutely. I do kind of like the juxtaposition between the rise of the father and kind of the yes. emotional, moral fall of the son. But yes, no, but I can, I, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. There definitely is enough material there. But I think this is the I think this is the superior film. Absolutely. I completely agree. The second one is is a great film too, but no, yeah. this is this is the I agree with you. This is the superior film. I also love that this is such a great template for so many other films and TV yep. series yep. that show the fall and the moral corruption of a character, of an anti-hero, of a villain. I love it. And this does it brilliantly i don't know we you know it's in this one he also does it in the second one when he's talking about him just settling all family outstanding family mm-hmm. business this pacino <laughs> this young fucking gorgeous man <laughs> who is an incredible actor yes. not a fucking caricature no who is almost the opposite of what he becomes yes. says so little at times Yes, yes. Just the way this fucking guy sits in a chair. Yes. It's like you, he's so charismatic and scary. Mm-hmm. They're like, I totally understand the charisma of Michael Corleone and how you would get sucked up in that, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Young I, Pacino is so whew. brilliant and intense. And I, yeah, I agree that he says so much with so little, like just the expression on his, his face, his eyes. Absolutely. Where he's looking at the in the yeah. room. My favorite scene with his eyes is the restaurant scene before he kills the guys. Yes. His eyes look so intense and ridiculous. I love it. And and like there's fear and rage and yes, and determination. Like, can he do this? Right. I don't know if I can do this. Yep. I'm gonna do fucking this. do it. Yes. I'm gonna do it. Yeah. And it, you know, and then like also like oh, I have to like I'm maybe I'm giving away what I'm thinking, so I have to right. kind of halfway acknowledge like oh yeah. Yes. And like I know I know exactly what you're saying. That's a very difficult scene to pull yes. off. Yes. And he nails it. Absolutely. Yes, he does. He looks like a little boy. He looks like a scared little boy. <laughs> he also looks you know, scary. <laughs> no, and it's just it, because that's that's almost like he's at that point of no return. Yes, he's crossing the Rubicon. You got it. Yeah, if he goes beyond that point, there is no going back. Yeah, and he feels it. He knows it, but he's got to yep. do it. And there's an obligation. It's family. And it's his father. And ah! All that there, and he's. <laughs> You know, oh my God, yeah, you're exactly right. What a what a fantastic performance, mm-hmm. all in the face and mostly in the eyes. Yeah, that's my favorite scene in the film. That and the ending are my two favorite scenes. Love it. It's so fucking good. So yeah, good. you're right. Yeah, you're, yeah. <laughs> I'll take it. I yeah, like that. <laughs> yeah, you're 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 absolutely correct. Thank um, you. I give this a nine point seven. Wow, nice. 
Nice. It's just a quarter point above Sadistic Game, just because I think the, the story element's a little bit more engrossing. I would agree with that. I think the rewatchability is much better, at least. For oh me. yeah. yeah, it's a yeah. much more rewatchable film. Yes. Although you. you the reality is this movie owes a little bit to Citizen Kane because it's kind of a yeah, similar template. Yeah. And the second one even more so with the flashbacks yes. and the cutting. And yes. The, so you could definitely see, obviously, Francis Ford Coppola is like, lift as many people have, is lifting from Kane and other movies. But Oh, absolutely. But we didn't even talk about, oh, I'm sorry, I was going to say, we didn't even talk about this, but Lawrence of Arabia also kind of pulls from Citizen Kane by yep. starting with his death. Yeah, so I yep. totally agree with you. Yeah. So it was, so that's what I was like, <laughs> do I put Kane first? Because it is, it, it became such a starting point right. for how do you tell a story in an interesting way? You yes. know? And it was like, oh, Citizen Kane, let's do what they did, right? It, right. it, it it's, it's become like a, 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 a source text for yes. so everything that came after. So it's just, I just, edged, I know it's going to be controversial, <laughs> but I just edged it out. To my surprise, Godfather's my number one. I'm adding it to the guest list. Uh, I've lost track. Where does this rank for you? <laughs> so I give this a 9.1 and it's my number two. It also beat out Citizen Kane for that reason, for the rewatchability, for the emotional resonance. Um, but I mean, again, technical, all five of these are technical marvels. They're all amazing. And it's interesting seeing a lot of the similarities technically and also thematically that they share. It's very, very compelling. All right, it's time for a recap. Coming in dead last for me was Gone with the Wind. <laughs> Give it a 6 out of 10. Number four is Lawrence of Arabia, 8.5 out of 10. Beautiful movie, complicated character, complicated choices made. Uh, Coming in number three, middle of the pack, 8.75 out of 10 is Casablanca. The shortest of the week, 9.5 <laughs> out of 10. Number two, Citizen Kane. And my number one, 9.75 out of 10 was The Godfather. Megan, wow. what is your recap? My recap coming in at number five is Lawrence of Arabia, which was 7.8. My number four is Gone with the Wind, which was 7.9. Number three was Citizen Kane, which I think I said 8.5. I don't remember. Um, yeah. I think that's what I said. Number two is The Godfather, which is, oh, no, I said nine for Citizen Kane. Um, number two is The Godfather 9.1. And my number one is Casablanca at 9.5. What is your recommendation of the week? Oh, God, I was so busy focusing on Casablanca <laughs> and loving it that I didn't think of a recommendation. I will say, oh, my God, I'm totally freezing. This one's a tough one. Do you have a recommendation of the week? I do. Ooh. It's going to make you happy. Ooh, my it. recommendation of the week is Casablanca. <gasps> Ooh. Because in a weird way, I mm -hmm. think generationally, this may be one of the lesser seen of these five. And we, I see conversations churn up again and again and again for, for most of these. Yes. Uh, not, not as much Lawrence of Arabia, but it, it will come up. Mm -hmm. But Casablanca, I don't see as much uh, chatter about occasionally. Mm -hmm. I don't see as much chatter. And also, it's the shortest. <laughs> I can't emphasize that enough. And yes. I think it's the only good movie Humphrey Bogart, only movie Humphrey Bogart is good in, potentially. Potentially. So uh, I, I want to give that one a little bit of a spotlight, a little bit of love. All 
right. I like that. Well, then I'm going to stick thematically with that and go with something. So I would also say of these five, watch Casablanca. But I would say watch When Harry Met Sally because that is a film that pays loving homage to Casablanca. So it's a nice Ooh. kind of double feature. All right. On our next episode, talk about a change. <laughs> we will be ranking the Rambo series. Wow. That's a that's a turn. We just took a complete <laughs> left turn. <laughs> Which includes 1982's Rambo, 1985's Rambo, First Blood, Part 2, 1988's Rambo 3, 2008's Rambo, and 2019's Rambo Last Blood, which I've never, ever seen. Wow. Do you know I've never seen any of the Rambos? That's a shame. I need to remedy that. Speaking of, I know that you're a legit film critic and we always bring you on to talk about real movies. <laughs> <clears throat> One of these times we have to bring you on to talk about absolute garbage horror I'm, movies. Are you kidding me? I love horror movies. I will talk about the good and the bad with horror movies. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm not saying good horror movies. Yeah, no, I will watch bad horror movies all day long. <laughs> Will you watch Uncle Sam? I've never you know seen what, it. I will watch it. You know what Uncle it. Sam is? I don't. Oh, my gosh. I'll watch it. In the VHS era, it was uh, you had a series of, I think they're all produced by the same person. Uh, it's the, the, the Jack Frost movie, yeah. which is the evil stone. I know exactly what that is, yeah. There's an Uncle Sam. And if you remember if you the video store era, you would walk in and they mm -hmm. had hologram oh, covers. I worked at a Blockbuster. I remember the VHS holographic covers remember <laughs> so it would be like a normal snowman and then you look at a different way like, it'd be an wow. evil snowman and it's like fangs. yeah right right <laughs> same thing with uncle sam it'd be like uncle sam wants you and then he'd be a monster and, yep. and he goes around killing people with the american flag which is it sounds silly but it's actually historically accurate <laughs> yeah i buy it <laughs> 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 At least it was in 2021. Yeah. We're now in 2022. Yeah, the shithole that 2021 was. <laughs> yeah, it's gone. 2022, everything is great, and America has never been better. It's wonderful. Were Tell we ever me, great? Uh, <laughs> we are now. Oh, good. <laughs> now that the evangelicals are gone, we're, we're, we're great. How much of this are you going to ask me to take out after the fact? None of it. None of it. None of it. <laughs> okay, Megan, in 2022, where can the fine folks at home find you? Well, I am co-host of Spoiler Piece Theater Podcast, which you can find at spoilerpiece.com. I also am a contributor at Edge Media Network, and you can find me on Twitter at OpinionSWorld. Yeah, uh, Megan has a real life, so she's not on social media very often. <laughs> you know, I used to be on all the time, and it was a drain. I had to step away. <laughs> I don't blame you whatsoever. I've, I've, as we record this, I've gone at least three rants on Twitter this week. Ooh. And I, I realized this isn't worth anything. I shouldn't do this, but, man, I just had to get some things. Up. So you're making the right decision. But now that we're in 2022, <laughs> I'm turning over a new leaf. Excellent. And the thing is... Social media is so much more excellent here in Utopia. Everybody just loves and supports each other, and people aren't just intentionally misinterpreting what things are saying in 140 <laughs> characters or less. It's wonderful, and it's just great. And you know what? The single greatest benefactor to the world 
Facebook. Facebook has done so much good here in 2022. I can't even think of all the good they've done, but it's just a lot of it, and it's amazing. <laughs> so you can follow us. We have no Facebook, but we might have to remedy that now that it's not accessible. <laughs> we are on Twitter, at Binge Movies. You can follow us on Letterboxd, letterboxd.com backslash binge movies. You see what we've reviewed. You see what we've added to the vault. You see what's coming up on the show in future episodes. So you can binge along with us as we work through our season uh, all throughout the year of 2022. It's going to be pretty exciting. Megan, I love having you on. Oh, I love being here. You're one of the all-time great guests. Oh. And that's not faint praise because we've had some truly great guests. I was going to say, the, you have great guests. Lady Juan who's recommended you. And oh, like, I love the Lady Juan. She's amazing. <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> so, yeah, she's the one that recommended you, and I all I could say is she's got great taste. So. Oh, you're going to make me blush. Thank you. This yeah. is such so a delight out, to be here. Do me a favor. Check out Spoiler Piece, and even if you don't check it out, <laughs> lie. <laughs> say you've checked it out. Leave them a five-star review on Apple Podcast. Ooh, we all you. need it. It we helps do. us. We do. You, you, you've been around in some form or format, Spoiler Piece, for what, seven, eight, nine years now, right? Uh. Seven years, yes. And you've been on the show for how long? Two years. Immediate upgrade. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I'd love to have you back anytime in the future. I would love that. Anything I can do for you, you let me know. Please, folks, support Megan and her. Her, she's she's doing she's doing good work out there in Movie Land. So Aww. give her give her support. Thanks, Jason. Uh, That's so yeah. nice. Yep. All right. Well. Uh, Guess I gotta watch Rambo movies. <laughs> <laughs> we just got done talking about Casablanca, The Godfather, and I gotta watch uh, 2019's Last Blood. Fuck. All right. Till next time, binge on. <laughs>